did it again. What number is this? Oh, 36. Uh, All yeah, right. It's 36. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Millsoap World podcast, the podcast all about military surplus, the original podcast about military surplus. Uh, this is episode number 36. There's other and ones. We're, uh, yes. Yes, there are other ones now. Uh, but we are here today. With, yeah, imitations, pretty much. We're here today with Aaron. Uh, say hello, Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Trying to do this differently. <laughs> Jared. Hello. And uh, Tom, a.k.a. Lockbars, is on here. Oh. A, uh, a Patreon member guest. I'm glad we could finally have Tom on. We've, talk- we've been talking about it for probably months. Um, yeah, you keep to- inviting me. And I'm, uh, yeah, I keep not being able to be on, so I'm glad that I can finally be on. It's been my fault. Yeah, well, glad, glad you could get on. We have a list of, I have a list here right in front of me of, uh, of people that, uh, Patreon members that are going to get on the show eventually. Uh, rule is if they've already been on, then they kind of go to the, to the bottom. First timers, higher, higher priority. But if you'd like to get on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. That's the only reason why you're listening to this. With that shameless plug out of the way, today our topic is, we don't have a topic. We're just... We're just going to talk about stuff. Um, I think we're going to start out. We haven't really done this. We got out of the practice of um, asking our guests. I guess maybe we haven't had a guest in a while. I don't remember doing it. We haven't it had any long, new but... people on in a while. Yeah. Yeah. So this is good. Um, so, Tom, how did you get into military surplus? Well, I've always been interested in history. Um, and that kind of got me into firearms. I was like, oh, I can, I can buy these. This is like a piece of history. It, um, cause I didn't grow up with guns. Like my grandfather had guns, my dad didn't like guns and that's probably why I'm obsessed with them. Um, so yeah, um, I was into world war two, especially just history in general. And yeah, that's pretty much how it started. Yeah. Very similar to me too. It was, I got into history, got into world war two history, started reading books about world war two. And then I realized like, wait, you can like buy guns from world war two. Like those are just out there. Like, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah. And and at first I was like, oh well, now I can buy these, but I didn't have any money. So and then by the time I had enough money, they started going up in price. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had the the uh, pretty much the same gateway rifle everybody else got for their first one. It was a uh, Mosin the Gaunt with oh yeah you know, all the stuff for hundred fifty dollars. Not yeah yeah. Well, yeah. You, don't know chef. you could get a yeah you could get like a ninety one thirty a crate of ammo ammo pouch bayonet for. Yeah, 150 bucks. Or All covered in authentic Cosmoline. Oh, yes. <laughs> and totally authentic, period, correct, shellac. Don't get me started, Danny. <laughs> From India? Anyways, yeah. Don't get you started. <laughs> so, what, so what is your favorite Millsurf now? Um, this one took a little bit of consideration because I finally got a label, and I've been wanting one for a while. But it's not my favorite. I think my favorite... Be- partially because of the story, which, you know, with every gun, you kind of like remember where you were when you got it, but it's an M1D and it's papered the CMP. Um, and it's a, a M1D combo. Um, it was, I went there, it was like a snowstorm because I'm close enough to the North store where I can drive there. So nobody was there. And I, I still didn't know uh, very much about grants. And then the guy's like, Hey, you should go check out that back rack there. They have like national matches and like, a few of these and they kind of told me what they were and there were like three m1d combos left so i picked up one of those and i actually got a six million serial number grant which is one of the last ones that were made by one of the usgi manufacturers um 
So, um, I know it's just, it's fun to shoot. Uh, they're hard to come by. Uh, it's a neat story. I know they're not, they're more used like, uh, apparently more like Vietnam. Uh, I don't think they caught Korea if they did. It was at the very end, but they're just neat rifles and it's hard to find one that's not faked or put together. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. For, for those of us that are uninformed, cause I don't know what is an M one D it's basically like, like there were, so again, D's like, stand for, uh, actually, yeah, well, it came after uh, D. D's nuts. Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I got it. We got it, Danny. Um, we knew it. We knew it. We all knew it. I don't know as much about, um, like the so-called sniper variants, even though it's really probably more of like a, uh, DMR rifle. Um, but there was like an earlier version that, um, well, actually this is, I think the version that, uh, Garand or Garand as they say it, um, like made and then they had another version they wanted to use um but it's yeah it's basically it's just got a scope mount it's, it's like a 2.2 power scope and then it has a cheek rest um it's got there's two uh flash hiders one is like uh, i forget what they call one's like a prong the other one's like a, a cone and they ended up taking a lot of those off because they found that like it actually inhibited accuracy so a lot of them i guess in theater they took them off hmm. was that answer the question yeah, it's I think so. I, I'm not surprised that that an M1 is your favorite or an M1D is your favorite, being that you are uh, Tom, aka Lockbars on Discord. <laughs> so I figured yeah. you're the you're the M1 guy. I, I figured I couldn't use like my old aim name from like high school, so I was like, I need to have something. I was like, all right, what do I like? Well, I always look for Lockbars on Grands for some reason. It's like, okay, I'll be Lockbars. Um, yeah, when I see M1s, I got to show or whatever. Yeah, I always look for Lockbars too. It's a good, and, it's a good sign. Yeah, it's like what's your throat well, erosion? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the muzzle, the muzzle wear. Yeah, it's well, T and E, or or what is it, M and M E and T or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like as if for most of us, like the difference between a one and two is going to make much of a difference. Um, well, it's, it's the only. Maybe you can explain this. Why is it the only gun, the only gun that's sold that people actually care about, like how? perfect the barrel is i guess like i can tell you i can tell you my oh, theory okay. okay let's hear it first does the does the cmp give out that information for each rifle <laughs> yes that's yeah, where that shit came from say. it's because yeah. because, because the they CMP. give out that in, they, it's because they give out that information people were like this must be valuable information because i yeah, sold it in one as a bullet test with anything else yeah, well, like that's that's the thing. Like, I sold an M1, and I was just like, "Here's an M1 for sale," and everyone was like, "What's the you know like tire kickers?" But they want to know the the erosion. What's the throat erosion? And and it's like, well, I I don't know, but it shoots like what like what do you want? Like I just but no other gun ever that I've ever sold does everybody ask about that. It's like it's just M1s that it's just most like thing. the few people that actually have those gauges will show you, but most people can just take an M2 ball around. And like, okay, does it? You can kind of guess mm-hmm. based on how much the bullet it eats. Um, so yeah, I, that's pretty much why. Because like you said, you if you buy a K98K, no one's going to ask for the muzzle wear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some beat up jank K98Ks out there that have been used in like four wars. The, and the only thing similar I would think would be if somebody asks if your M9130 is counterboard. Right. Sim- similar, yeah. And it's oh, funny because. Y- I was going to add real quick. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I want to touch on what we're on the M1D about. Because I see people always like buying them and wanting to buy them or for sale ads and stuff. And I'll see one that looks like 
like the cheek uh, pad is like the wrong color. And I guess there's probably a little bit of a variance, but if you see one that's like, looks like uh circus peanuts, it's probably a reproduction one. Cause you just, from looking at them, you kind of get an idea of what the color looks like. And like, sometimes you're like, Oh, well, I just, yeah, I bought one, but we'll did it have papers. Well then I'll also on top of that, like, uh, cause they can just put them together, you know, um, the papers can be faked too. So you have to make sure like, does the barrel have the right drawing number, um, on it? So like, there's just a lot that goes into buying them in a lot of places you can get ripped off. Just like with the they're, cartouches. They're not cheap either, right? No, I I paid 2800 for mine and it was the combo. Um I I think on auctions, you know, they're going for like 5 6 grand, maybe. Maybe yeah. more, I don't know exactly I know, where like, right now. We always tell everybody too, do your research, especially if you're going to spend that kind of money. Well, and a lot of people would just buy the rifle like, because you can just at the CMP, you can just buy an M1D rifle. It's got the the uh, the mount, um, not the mount, but it's like been. It's got all the the what is it? It's not drilled to it, but it's got like the, the thing where you can uh, put the scope mount on it. And then they'll go get parts for it, whether they're repro or real, and they just add them to it. And all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, this is a this is an M1D. But really, all they bought was like the rifle. Yeah. Now I want circus peanuts though, since you mentioned peanut colors. I know you either love them or hate them, and I don't know why I, I, I like them. So those are the orange peanuts? Yeah, yeah, those big, spongy peanuts. I, I love them. Oh, yeah, I love eating styrofoam, especially when it's bright orange. And mushy. Yeah. Well, cool. like, you got to feel them. Like, once you become, like, an aficionado of the circus peanuts, you get the bag, like, you, you go into, like, uh, like Cabela's or whatever they sell them. Mm-hmm. You can kind of squeeze them in the bag, and if they have just, like, a little bit of give to them, like a nice cigar... Then they're good, but if they're like hard, just no, just just pass. Sometimes yep. I'll forget what they taste like, and I'll like, oh, I'm gonna get some circus peanuts. I have one. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't need any more of these. Candy corn, same thing. Yeah, yeah, not a candy corn guy. What about peeps? No, nah, see, I don't like marshmallow. I love peeps. The only one. Okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> we usually ask also what everybody's most recent purchase is, right? Oh yeah, let's do recent editions. I bought a pickup. Oh yeah, Aaron's <laughs> been Aaron's been adulting. Yeah, that's no, Jared. I, yeah, I bought a pickup. So I, oh I yeah, buy, that's Jared. Sorry. Yeah, I can't buy any guns because I had to buy that. Well, that's less fun. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, the I, used uh, car market is garbage right now. I bought it new. It's only oh, garbage the, if you're the both uh, the, both cars markets are garbage right now. <laughs> yeah, it's not garbage if you're selling. Yeah. Well. Danny or Aaron? Uh, Aaron, I, I bet I bet it's going to be really shocking to know what, what recent gun you got. I don't know. What would you mean? Oh, I bought a K98K. Just kidding. I bought another M95. And this is number... 10. 23. Oh, 10. 10. Okay. Double digits. I actually bought it from Tom. Does that officially make you a pattern collector then? I, I think when you have two or three, I think it makes you a pattern collector. Okay. <laughs> At this point, it thinks I'm a hoarder. Well, you know about them. You know, you wanted an AOI. Is that like the main reason you wanted it? Yes. I don't have that one. Is that the Egypt or uh, Ethiopian one? Uh, it's not necessarily Ethiopian. Um, it's uh, Italian East Africa. So it's okay. Italian colonies. I don't remember what the AOI actually is. What is it like? Africa... Orientiel Italianis. 
Italian. Yeah, something like that. I don't speak spaghetti. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that one. If you read the, this is why I tell people to with the to read the the Monlicker books that are in English with a grain of salt. Because uh, I can't remember which book it is. It might be the Scarletta book. Because it says that that marking is Greek. It's not Greek. I just bought that book. So I'll have to check. That's why I don't trust no books. Unless yeah, big pictures. the Scarletta book is okay. But he gets some stuff wrong. Well, I wanted to know about Dutch M95s. Or 1895s, however you refer to them. Mm. And it really it covers it a little bit. But it's like, oh, there's nothing on here I couldn't get on the internet. Yeah, they're not... Those are not as well documented, unfortunately. I, I don't those because somebody asked me on Reddit if I was going to collect those, and I said I wasn't a crazy person. That was me that asked you at that. I oh, think. was it? Because mentioned that when I mentioned them. Because God, that's that would be a nightmare. There's a lot of them things. Yeah, the long rifles are a little easier because there's like the army version, the navy version, and then there's like the KNIL, like the Indonesian ones. I've seen so one of those like, in person. The Indonesian one? Yeah. Was it, like, pretty beat up? Uh, I would say mediocre in terms of overall. They were, you know, it's a harsh environment, and they were around for a while. It didn't have the communist star on it. Hmm. I I, I see a few of them that have, like, the the little, like, brass plaque thing. It's, like, got unit marks on it. Um, I see a few of those, and I think the handguard's a little different. Other than that, I don't know too many other ways to distinguish them. Yeah, I, I I've not seen too many Dutch M95s in person. Uh, Danny's got one, right, Danny? Yep. Yep. I just got the just the one to check the box. Yep. I did the same exact thing. You've got the bicycle carbine, right? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I do. It's either bicycle or cavalry. I think it's a bicycle one though. But they're it weird. Confusing. It's got that weird wood block on the side of the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. It's All got right. the wood magazine. And inside. that's harder to find, right? Because didn't one of the importers like mess with some of that stuff, take them off or take handguards off if they didn't just break off or whatever? I didn't hear about an importer doing it, but I'm just assuming people do because it's probably weird. Like, cause it's, you know, on only on one side. Um, are you going to say something, Jared? I have the same rifle as you with the wood on the side. That's all. We, we have the same model, whatever, whichever did they, one it is. Did yeah. they, did they extend M- M95s, Dutch M95s? What do you mean? Well, there was a period of time in the U.S. when they had to be a certain barrel length, and there were some rifles that ended up with extensions on oh, them, right? Mm-mm. No, mm-hmm. the only one that I'm aware of was extended is the Swede carbines. Yeah. Uh, okay. A lot of those, lot of those 303 ones have like a, what is it, like a muzzle break or capitator or something on them? I, I don't know the story behind that, but the 303 converted one. I've seen them, yeah, with, with something on them. I don't know why. Again, if I had a book that I could read that had that information that I could learn, I guess I could just do a Google search. Yeah. Yeah, no, I only got I only got this Dutch because well, like I needed one to check the box. Also, it had the wood side, which I thought you know the wood magazine cover is cool, and then the, uh, the cleaning rod, clearing rod. I uh, if it's got if a rifle's got all the stuff and it had dies, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna have to get it. That was one of those Washington gun show scores, man. Yeah, we did exactly the same thing for exactly the same reasons. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. You have the dies now, I think. I do have the dies. Yeah, they're in my table. Nice. They're marked for you. They're your dies. Thank you, sir. Yes. Um, recent additions. Uh, is that... Or were you done, Aaron? Yeah, it's my 10th M95. It's an AOI. I forget, Tom. Is it is a carbine, right? Nope. Nope. Uh, it's uh, a full-length 8x50. Uh, sweet. Yes. 
That's be my third long rifle then, and the second one in eight by fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just picked up an M95, so it's also an eight by fifty. You just and, picked up a different M95. Yeah, a full length rifle. Um, it, apparently, according to you, because you're the person that knows the most of these that I know, uh, it's seen check use. Oh, that one. Yeah, it is. It had a check. Uh, a, des- a district, military district assignments on it. I'm guessing it just kind of like when the Austro-Hungarian Empire disintegrated, just kind of like, okay, this is here now, and then they just stamped it. And yeah, so the the basic story of it is is that when the when the military or when the Austro-Hungarian Empire disintegrated, Czechoslovakia ended up with a lot of Austro-Hungarian arms, um, and Poland did too. Um, Czechoslovakia was still trying to figure out what the heck they were going to do for their military. So they were like, okay, we'll just use the stuff we have. So they issued M95s, um, both long and short and carbines. Um, and then they also had um, BRNO make um, around 5,000 receivers, which is the only receivers made at a different facility other than Steyr or uh, Budapest. Uh, or FEG. Uh, so those are very rare, and I have one. <laughs> but um, uh, I was about to ask: Did they make them after World War One? Uh, the yes. Yeah, so the Czechoslovakian ones, the BRNO ones, were made post World War One. Um, no other M95 receiver was made post World War One. Those were all. Anything dated post World War One is uh, is basically just combining stuff together, because the basically Steyr and FEG were gutted uh, by the Treaty of Post World War One. Uh, both countries were gutted in terms of military strength, so they they could not produce more than a thousand small arms a year, and that included assembly. So there was no reason to actually produce anything, so they just assembled leftover parts. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, there's a little in, in, intro thing there. But, yeah, Tom's one that he showed me is really neat because you can trace its history. The Czechoslovakian ones are neat because you can trace their history. Typically, you can see them be assigned to Austro-Hungarian use and then go to Czech use. And then most of the time, they ended up in Bulgaria. That one he has did not, at least yeah, as, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to have that shellac or whatever, yeah, like that coating Whatever they put, I don't know if the Bulgarians put on it. It doesn't have that. Um, it hasn't been refinished that I can tell. Um, typically, yeah, like typically Tom, what you'll look for is a bunch of stamps. The Bulgarians oh, love yeah, to stamp yeah. stuff. Yeah, the only thing that's on there seems to be a, like, there's no S, of course. There's a, a Polish unit mark from what I, I thought. Oh, maybe it's an Austro-Hungarian unit mark, but it appears to be Polish, like a Polish infantry uh, mark. F regiment, I think they might have marked it by. I'm not sure. But it's it's cool. Mm-hmm. It's very rare for most of the Czech ones to not have gone into Bulgarian use. And, and that one, uh, I believe it was Austro-Hungarian because it's got those little K, Austro-Hungarian acceptance stamps, right? Isn't that what the K is for? Uh, the K is um, uh, inspection marks, and oh, okay. unless it's on unless it's on the bolt head and the bolt body, then it's uh, got a different meaning, which is great and not confusing at all. <laughs> Listen, we only got one stamp. All right, we got to put it in different places. That we <laughs> it's the people. same stamp too. Like it's the same size, same font, and it's like, what the heck? 
Look, Carl's been making stamps for 30 years, and he only knows how to make a K. All right? <laughs> there are different stamps that are do appear on the bolt head and bolt body, but that has to do with headspace. Anyway, Danny, what'd you buy? Uh, I mean, in January, I just bought I bought some modern pistols. That doesn't really count. Um, December, I bought my third Type 14 Nambu. It's like a rig. Third. Yeah, I have yeah I have three now. Um, I think I've seen this one. It's uh the the main it's just slightly earlier than the my earliest one because it's got the uh the the grip serrations uh the, like the little grooves cut in the grip go all the way up to the top instead mm, of like okay. mine kind of stopped. Um, it came. I, I walk into the gun show like first thing on Saturday, like I try to do, and just bam, right in the case facing the front door. There's two Nambus and like two holsters and everything. So I'm just like, oh geez, you know, and I tell them to open up the case and look at them and. Um, one of them, the, the nicer pistol happened to come with a, uh, a holster and it's one of those, um, like rubber infused canvas holster, you know, like after they kind of went away from the other. Yeah. And it was in great shape. You know, the, you know, the canvas and everything was, it was still, it, it looks, it looks really new. Like it's in, it's in good shape. And then it had the cleaning rod and it had a spare firing pin in the, uh, in the, in the pouch still, which I was really cool because those things are expensive i've seen what they go for on ebay and stuff so and the pistol was great shape uh, it was all matching the magazine matched it came with a spare magazine in the holster and i was like okay like this I, so I, I had to do it i wasn't expecting to does does the spare um, magazine match it doesn't no i wish no. i wish it did but no there's one thing um, i in that book i remember learning like the so you'd have like the last was it two or three of the serial number on the magazine that matched the the frame of the gun and the one with the dot above it is the spare. The one without the dot is the like the like one the actual like the matching first magazine, I guess I could call it. And the one yeah. the, and matching with the dot above it is the spare. They did it like the Germans then they used a plus. Yeah, yeah, the Germans did a plus. Huh. Um same concept. That's kinda neat. Yeah. So what I don't do you remember what year it is? Yours does it have like the uh, early 40, 40, I think it's a forty three, but it's just early in the year, I think. Uh, okay, so it's, like the one. it's over on the wall across the room from me, but yeah, um, yeah, I was I was happy to get it. You know that that book, you know the wool. I got the got the first one, and I never thought I'd be really into Type 14s, but there's just something funky about them that is just kind of cool. Um, oh, weird, Danny. You always yeah. make fun of me for liking weird shit that <laughs> you can't shoot. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What did we say and, uh, at the beginning, guys? The uh, pattern thing, collector is three or more. I'm not sure where that where that line is, but um, I mean, I wasn't planning on buying it. I was fine with my because I had like a, the mid war. I have another 43, and then I have the 45 mid one. So I kind of have like a mid war, you know, example. Then like a super last ditch type 14, and I was okay with that. But then I saw this one, I just had to because so I just add up, you know, the price of the accessories and everything. Good shape. So. Um, What's really funny is when I started talking to Danny, he did not want to own pistols. He thought that they were dumb. Uh-huh. Dude, it wasn't that far. Man, we are, I was on the podcast earlier on in the podcast. I didn't give a crap about Milser pistols, dude. I just was like, nope, I just like rifles. Not into pistols at all. And I, it's weird, man. I don't know what's happening. It's happening to me. But uh, yeah, I'm getting yeah, into that 32 kick, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still kind of on a 30 kick. Yeah, yeah. I just bought, I just bought a 32 pistol. Um, I just sent the payment out like yesterday, I think, for it. So hopefully I'll get it later this week, early next week. 
But it's a, modern. Uh, nope. Mm-mm. Nope. Um, I just I just can't wait to get my hands on this PP. I ordered a Walther PP. Oh, just a PP? Yeah, it's not a PPK. It's a PP. They're, they made the PP first, I believe. Yes. And then they pretty sure they made the PP first. And then they, they came up with the PPK. Later that was on. one of the ones we were looking at when I was at the at your house, right? The ones that at the shop that it had been like modified. Mm, I can't remember if they had one at the shop. No, it wasn't at the one your honey hole. It was at a different place, and you were looking at it, and you were like, "Oh crap!" They restamped oh, it. Oh, oh, that was the 38H. That they oh, had okay. I always confused. Yeah, that. man, I almost bought that 38H, and I look until I looked at the bottom of it. Because it's funny, because like a year ago, that was that was kind of a high price, but now like 38Hs have gone up a lot, so probably a pretty good price now. Even with it being restamped, I don't know. I'd have to look at it again to see. But yeah, the 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 38H, the Sour 38H, was kind of a response to the Walter PP. Like that was their kind of copying that the Walter PP pattern. Um, and I like, I've always liked PPs more than PPKs. Um, I think PPKs are just like a little bit too small. Um, the larger, especially being blowback, I think it's, you know, straight blowback. I think the, the, the PP, the larger frame and size and everything, it's a little bit, a little bit more manageable. Like not like 32 kicks, but like blowback pistols are, can, can be snappy. It's kind of weird. Um, People mentioned that when you, when you sent me that uh, slow-mo video of your pistols that you took out in the desert. Mm-hmm. They mentioned that it was like, wow, those are really snappy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, you could get like, you could get like a, a PPK that's 380 and shoot it next to just like any kind of subcompact or like, like a Glock 19 and nine millimeter. And you think like, Oh, a heavy steel 380 versus a light nine millimeter, the light nine millimeter is going to kick more. But it's like no, that that straight blowback pistol is, is snappy. Like they just got a little, and the actions blow. Like they shoot so fast, it's crazy. Because when you look at me shooting the rifle in slow motion, that's the same speed. I think it's nine nine hundred sixty frames a second. It's the same speed, and the rifle looks like nice in slow motion. You kind of see everything going on. But then the pistols, it's like you know you blink and you miss half the half the you know the action working because they're so they just they're so fast because you know they just go straight back. They're just you know, blow back. So There's no like unlock. If you had to carry time. one, which one would you prefer, the PP or the 38H? Uh, like, you're soldier or two. Like, you know, which one would you want? I think I I would do I would do a late no safety 38H. That's what I would do. Because uh, the very um, towards the end of the war, they stopped. They kind of went back. Originally, sour sour 38s didn't have a safety. And they added the safety um, when they when they changed the name to 38H because the military wanted a they wanted a, a slide mounted safety on their guns. The, the German military wanted safety on all their guns, and so they kind of demanded a, a safety from Walther. So they so they put one on it. Um, people think the H on 38 stands for H for the hammer, and I think I even said that in my early video, but actually I found out that's not true. Um, it stands for either safety like a like a German word for safety that starts with an H. Forgot the exact one, or it stands for uh, hair, which is German Army H E E R. Um, but I think I would take a, a, a safetyless uh, 38H, because then you just got a nice smooth slide. It's a double action, single action. It's got a cocker, decocker. That's a lot like carrying. Because back in the day, I carried a a, a 226, you know. So I kind of 
got used to the single action, double action. Yeah, that was my first handgun. It's still my favorite. And when I got a 38H, I was like, oh, this looks familiar. Yeah. It has a decocker. Yep. Yeah, it goes it goes all the way back to the yeah, it goes all the way back to 38. It's pretty cool. New. Yeah, yeah, it's really not. That's honestly what made me want to get it. A guy had one at a gun show, a friend of mine, and he's like, "Hey, you know, you know, it's got a decocker, so decock it." And I was like, "So decock the hammer," and he's like, "Now do it again." And uh, you know, it's, it was had more resistance, but it cocked the hammer back, and I was like, "What?" You know, just it it was so funky and cool. I was like, "Okay, I have to have one," and I eventually got it from him. But yeah. Um, yeah, I would take that. And the shrouded hammer, I like the like the encapsulated, you know, hammer. It's kind of neat. Um, doesn't snag on anything. That's what in Sauer's advertisement. That's actually what they the, they advertise the gun as because the hammer is enclosed. You don't have to worry about it like snagging on clothing and stuff like that. Um, I actually carried a 38H, like pocket carried one for like a couple days, just to get a feel for it. Now that was meant to be carried originally, like with a holster, right? Uh Probably. Because I know like the PP was like, you think it's like, oh, it's like pocket size, but that was meant to be carried in a holster, right? Yeah. I think, I'm not sure with the, with the 38, if, how that was meant to be carried initially. Oh, and there was a 36 too before the 38. There was a 36 that was a smaller size. I think that was PPK size and it was too small. And then they made the, the Sour 38, which was slightly bigger. It's like the Walther PP size. And then, and then the, yeah. Armor Chris the Hammer, so 38H. A lot of people don't know that, but I only know that because I bought the the Sour books that like you can't find any, anywhere. Um, I forgot who. It's over on my shelf across the room. But there's like a Volume 1 and Volume 2, and the Volume 1s are like 500 bucks if you find them, but I lucked up into a copy. But I got it after I did my 38H video, so I should probably do one correcting my own misinformation because I hate misinformation. Did you get anything else? No, that's it. The PP, I'm just waiting on, waiting to get my hands on that PP. Is that a giggity? Yeah, so I got a, I got a, I have a Johnson and a PP that I get All to right. play with now. So I just need You're another, right. another, another gun euphemism. Um, I guess am I the only one that hasn't shared like recent pickups? Yeah. Other than yeah, what's your, what's your recent additions? Mm-hmm. Um, well, besides the M ninety five, would be well the Dutch eighteen ninety five. Um, that's the Army version, which I pretty much think I. I don't think there's much else to tell. Other than I had the cleaning rod, which I guess is really uncommon. So I grabbed and a lot of them. Are it's got a mismatched bolt, which I I maybe seen one that has had a matched bolt. Um, they seem to the cartouches are stock stamp, whatever you want to call it. They always seem to be pretty well struck and still there mostly, and I like those. So that's cool. Um, let's see. The other one was I got a Russian capture K98K because I just you know it's like a shooter. It was you know, in some fashion in the Eastern front. Um, so that's got some history to it. I like those. And I think we're talking on the discord about how those have kind of gained in popularity and they've definitely gone up in price. Yeah. Used to be like, yeah. That's because like the cost German stuff, man, that's because the cost, uh, difference between, uh, the K 98 K's and the Russian capture K 98 K's has driven out the, uh, snobby elitism, that, w- that used to be keeping the cost separate. Yeah, I think people are recognizing too, like, hey, this, you know, this was in some fashion on the Eastern Front, and that's cool in its own right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much. But, um, but Danny, remember, don't use Turk ammo in it. Oh, yeah. That Turk, that Turk ammo. Just a, we're just going to trigger Sam. Yeah, 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 no, everyone, everyone, especially after Ian's video, everyone gives the same advice. Don't shoot Turk ammo, it'll crack your stock. 
And I think Ian said it one time in a video. He did. But I'm pretty sure I've shot quite a bit of Turk ammo back in the day and don't have any crack stocks. I actually shot mine the other day with e Ecuadorian ammo, and it shot pretty good. Yeah, I think that's good stuff. I think that Ecuadorian ammo is good. Some of the primers don't go on the first hit. <laughs> I've yeah. never shot a K98. It's like shooting yeah, that's why, yeah. <laughs> Probably why you collect them 95s. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thanks, Danny. <laughs> Gotta shoot the, ca- the Cadillac of bolt actions. You would shoot it's, one a little less, it's, it's a little less exciting, though, because it just kind of like... Works every you know, time? It's just, it works every time, and it's just accurate, and you know, all that boring mm, stuff. Mm, mm. Don't get any fully, fully bolt actions. Bolt no, action. I might be wrong. Didn't, don't they have sort of like a wide like acceptable MOA or something. I remember yeah. seeing some videos on that. I mean, I don't know anything about K98Ks. Probably yeah. not any worse than most other World War II rifles, I would guess. It's not. Uh, standard bolt action K98K, I believe, was five inches at 100. That's me remembering. That's not me reading out of a book. Yeah, I remember like the, like the <laughs> accuracy standard the soldiers were held to, but I don't know if that is directly correlated to what the rifle was capable of. Or if that's just what the soldier was capable of. Maybe. They're not pinpoint rifles. I saw... Oh, man, there's a there's a guy on YouTube, like, he was one of the OG gun tubers. And all he did was just do, like, crazy long-range shooting. You know, like, he'd shoot SMLEs and stuff all day, like, out to, you know, a thousand yards or whatever, because he lived out in the desert. And, uh... And I remember he, I think he just put a scope on a, on a random K98K and he just started nailing something like that was like ridiculously far away, like 1500 yards or something like that. And, uh, so I got the impression from that, that like your, your average K98K is, is maybe capable of it, but I don't know if he just got lucky. So I said from the pickups, I guess I did want to add one thing if I could, I think one of the guys on discord wanted me to mention it about, um, I, I guess a lot of people already know that this, but some don't about like tr- trying to find an M one grand. That's like all original, as they say, do we want to get into this or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all matching. It's all, yeah. <laughs> all <laughs> matching M one. Yep. And yeah. Um, and also like sometimes people want to just swap out parts, but sometimes they don't realize that, you know, maybe there was a time, you know, uh, Winchester, used Springfield barrels for a time. So someone might just take that Springfield barrel off of there, but it, that's what it came out of the factory with. Or, you know, HRA, I think, used LMR barrels for a time. And it doesn't mean it's not original to the rifle, but people just switch them out. Um, and then also, like, um, you know, what I was going to, I wanted to mention this too, because this is a neat uh, uh, grand that I have that people might want to hear about. It's a uh, PBS rebuild. Is anybody familiar with that? I think I mentioned it on the Discord before. PBS? Is that uh, Italian? Yeah, well, uh, it is not Italian, but it was in Italy. Um, it stands for Peninsula Base Station. And it was like, um, you know, I don't know what echelon it was, but it was basically Battlefield picked up rifles and they would, you know, be in charge of uh, making sure they were functional and putting them back in the field. But the rifle is stamped PBS, like 44. It's in Italy. And it's one of the ways you could tell that that rifle is actually there in 1944. And one of the guys on the Discord has OBS, which is Brisbane, I think, in the Pacific. I don't know the specific story on that, but this this one brand, you can tell like it was in Italy in 1944. It was likely picked up off a 
battlefield in some capacity to be reinspected. So like that's another way, and they're out there. They're not. I don't see them very often, but um, it's marked on the barrel. It says like PBS a little dash and like a zero or a O and forty four. So I just thought that's something neat that people that like Garands might like to know. Huh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I had, I had no idea really. I don't I don't know why I just I've, I've never gotten into American American rifles that much. Like the M1 cost. was my first cost was for my, me. Yeah, cost is a big part of it. Maybe I, I'm not sure. I've just never never been into them, which I feel like is a shame. Like as a red blooded American, I should like American guns. But although it just never, I say cost, but the two the two most expensive guns I've ever purchased are American. See, there you go. I say Holy cost. Navy. Yeah, the Lee Navy and my Crag. Yep. Yeah. So, well, two. There's only like five rifles. Like, I mean, yeah. unless you like pattern collect. Like, there's the M1, the O3, the, this 1917, the Crag, and the Trapdoor. But I could get. Well, I guess carbine. you could get a well, yeah carbine O3 A3. I guess if you want to take that off of the O3, but it's still an O3, I guess. That's still seven, and I can name more than seven countries that had a, a Mauser of any capacity. So basically, it's it's like a limited thing that you could you could easily get them all. And then, then what? We got to waste our money Johnson. on something. Yeah, yeah. We got to waste our money on something. So and the Navy. Um, the neat thing with Garands, I think, is like people are like, oh, I'm just going to get a Garand, and they're like, okay, I want one that's from World War II. Okay, and then they want all the four USGI manufacturers, and then then they want like I don't know, you want a six million one, and then you want a pre Pearl Harbor. And people just go down the rabbit hole, but that's where it comes from. Like with Garands, I think, because then you get people that end up with like eighty of them. They have one, or they have one that I knew one guy that had one for like every month of the war. Dude, I was at a I was at a gun show about twelve years ago or something in Tallahassee. I was I was working at the show, and uh, there was a guy at the table next to me who had like he had about twenty twenty M ones on his table, and he was just like he was just like you know. He was the M1 guy, the M1 rifle guy. He was always looking for it. And some guy walked into the show trying to sell an M1, you know, like just a random guy. And uh, he forked over like five grand for this rifle or just something crazy like that. And I just remember being like, what? Like he just willingly was like, I'll give you five grand for that. Something something like that. Um, so, uh, oh, oh, crap. Like he knew uh, something or he wasn't thinking. Yeah, he knew something about it. Which that that was kind of how it would open my eyes to like okay I guess there's something to these like there's something special about some of them versus others. Well, I've seen them at shows. It'll just like all correct. And I can just look at it. It's like that's not correct because some of it's not even just like the, the drawing number. Some of the times it's like the shape of the parts. Like does it have this bevel here? You know, like there's or is it like a milled handguard clip versus a stamped one. Like there's just lots of these little things that you can pick out and they just like label it correct. And somebody's like, oh, it's correct. Okay, cool. Here's my money. We've been joined by someone. Oh boy! I don't know if he's just listening. He's taking the. T- he's pleading the fifth right now. I guess. Yeah. Oh, I thought you guys were live. You didn't want me interrupted. No, we're live. Oh no, we are live. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a professional endeavor, Matthias. <laughs> this is not professional. Wait, are you live? Live? Or are you recording live? I'm recording. Oh, okay. That's good. So I can just say obscenities then, right? I don't care. Okay. Cool. I'm not going to get canceled. I don't have Twitter. I wasn't listening before. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. We were talking about M1s. Uh, that sounds exciting. M1s. Yeah. That's you literally talk- everything, though, so I don't know what which which M1. <laughs> yeah, the helmet, the tank, the gun, the rifle, the carbine. Yeah. 
I was gonna I was gonna ask you, Tom, being a being a uh, M1 guy, where do you fall on this Garand versus Garand nomenclature? I, I had a feeling you were to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I I say Garand just because like that's what people always called it, and that what's I don't realize the guy's name was Garand, but and I just I remember years ago there was some lady on CNN and she was english and she was like you don't say afghanistan it's afghanistan and i was like you just sound kind of you know you just want to hold something over people when you say it. and i realize some people want to say it i don't really care like if you say it quickly it doesn't even really make much of a difference um i don't know i don't it doesn't really matter to me like you call it what you want but you know he was in the u.s when he created the rifle and there's just so many people that say grand it's like what's the difference yeah there's I'm been sort of like a modern there's been like a modern revision now. And I noticed some people, like if you call it a grand, they kind of like put their nose up at you a little bit. Like, oh, you don't call it the the new accepted gun. Yeah. Gun. Like it's, it's like a it's like a Milster dogma or something on, like that. On the flip side, though, if you call to some people, if you call it a Garen, they look at you like you have nine heads. Oh, yeah. Because they yeah. Because the, they don't know. Yeah. The, the, the random dude at a gun show. Yeah, Garen. Like, Garen, what? Garin, like what? Yeah. What'd you call me? Uh, you can call it a Garen to me, like, and correct me if you say um actually first. Then I'll be like, okay, actually, it's pronounced. <laughs> yeah. I watched a YouTube video, so yes. Garen. Yeah, yeah. I watched I watched YouTube, so like, uh, I oh, kind of know a thing or two. Since since we're talking about it, and Othias wasn't here for this question, Othias, how many rounds does an M1 magazine hold? M1 Wait, rifle. Which, which one? Uh, I'm so confused now. Which M1 are we talking about? M1 again? rifle. M1 right. Garand. Garand. Talking about the clip? No, the magazine. No, the magazine. Oh, what are you talking about? If you force another one in over the clip? I'm confused. Where are we at? How many, how many rounds does the M1 rifle magazine hold? The magazine? You can probably jam a bunch in there, but they're not going to feed. <laughs> it's seven. You can't yeah. overfeed it. With yeah, Danny's yeah, try. No, I'm talking about without a clip. Just shove a oh, bunch of Oh, without a clip? Yeah, well, that yeah, would be well, great. Yeah. Look, you guys were trying to be highly technical there, so I'm just trying to say. <laughs> I got a hammer out. I can fit 14, 15 of them things in there. <laughs> yeah, I what? Put them in there. It's not going to get you anywhere, but go for oh, it. Jeez. Without the clip <laughs> walls, has anybody tried? Go for it. Dang, yeah, let's try it, Danny. Yeah, I know. I thought Dude, you guys that... were playing the clip, clip versus magazine game, so I'm no, like, okay, it well, wasn't... without the clip, how many rounds could I fit in a Garen? <laughs> no. no, it's... it's no, so. Danny, you yeah. explain it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's because of the, the M1 tips and tricks video, everybody comments on it and is trying to correct me because at some points of the video, I'm referring to the magazine. At some points, I'm referring to the clip. And so everyone's like, it's a, it's a magazine. It's not a clip. Or it's a clip. It's not a magazine. And oh, the gun, the magazine holds eight. You know, everyone kind of corrects me in the, in the comments on that video. So I've just developed this... Uh, this like pet peeve or something now. Where... I've never tried to thumb one down. Can you not thumb down the eighth one? Nope. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I've just never tried to do that. Like I don't know why I would have needed to. But yeah, I... I only I only did it because I liked I like I don't like storing guns with one in the chamber. So the the M1 was my uh, my go to gun when I lived in Florida for shooting hogs. I, I shot quite a few hogs with it, and uh, but I wanted to keep it loaded, like the magazine loaded, but not one in the chamber. How, and I fiddled how, around with it. How close is it to being able to do it? Is it like no way, Jose? Yeah, it's it's no way, no way, Jose. Like over half the cartridge. Yeah, it's just uh, just a hard hard stop. I no, this is a challenge. It's been a while no. since I've done it. I'm gonna go push on it. I'm gonna find out. Well, 
Well, he had people. That's the part that yeah, always... Yeah, I've had people, yeah, challenge, challenge it. And then I'm like, go go grab your gun and try it. And let me know. I had, this, I had this with the uh, Remington Model 8. Mm. Because it's okay. always like, is it four rounds or five rounds? Yeah. And everybody argues about it till they're blue in the face. And like, yeah, I heard you mention that at the end of that clips video. I was like, yeah, oh, but I think it, it actually does vary, though. Like, people will be like, I cannot get a fifth round and, and close the bolt on mine without chambering it. It just varies gun to gun. Yeah, I've, for some reason, I know that I have an FN 1900 and a Remington 8, and the 1900 fits five, no problem. The 8 is like, you, you could really struggle to get a fifth one in there, but it's going to want a chamber. You know what I mean? Like it's, if you really hammered on it, you could probably do it, but I'm scared of breaking a spring. That's weird. That's just like a tolerances thing. They just didn't. I, I've heard people say you got to go in there and flip this and do that and blah. And I've taken it apart and looked and I just, I have no clue. I think it, it I, I, the whole episode is like, this should be a really easy question to answer. And then I never found a, like an adequate answer for it. <laughs> yeah. What was our next topic, Danny? Oh, uh, Oh, just on the on the oh, list wait. here. You were gonna do a joke, weren't you? Oh, oh God, yeah, it's a bad joke, dude. This is a, this is kind of a boomer joke. Boomer. Oh, yeah. That's here. all your jokes are. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Okay. Please do not hold me accountable for this joke. Found it on the internet. A guy walked into a crowded bar, waving his unholstered pistol and yelling, "I have a 45 caliber Colt 1911 with a seven-round magazine plus one in the chamber, and I want to know who's been sleeping with my wife." A voice from the back of the room called out, "You're gonna need more ammo." <laughs> okay. This is a joke. Yeah. It's a joke. Didn't say. I didn't say it was a good one. I thought How it was. That we all know it's a joke, even though it didn't do the thing it's supposed to do. Make everybody laugh. Yeah. 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 I thought it was. I thought the punchline was going to be that it wasn't going to. It wasn't going to chamber, or it wasn't going to fire. <laughs> it was going to jam. No, you had one in the chamber. That one would. Oh, that would have one would have fired. Then it would have jammed. Yeah. Yeah, that was my that was my nineteen eleven joke. How do you get a nineteen eleven to jam? You shoot it. You guys cut out all the dead air and you just leave it in because that's we, really good. We cut it out. <laughs> you should leave it in. Just we, leave a cut. Like leave the one in right before I said that, so that people can understand. Yeah. Uh, just put it like two each show after. Uh, there was one time that I forgot to cut it out, and Danny was like, this is really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, we the program you use, Aaron, just, like, auto-cuts out so many seconds of, of dead air. Oh, that's so, interesting. I guess, like, over at Fudbusters, they're doing that, but I think it's a too aggressive on the attack. Or, no, I'm thinking of we, like, no, no, it's This Week in Guns. That's what I'm thinking of. So they're Man. all on top of each other? No, it's like, there's a natural bleed-off for certain words, and then it doesn't happen, and you're like, ah! Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aaron's got it tuned pretty good. the The system that I use, the program I use, it just it looks for a certain decibel level and then reduces it to a certain amount of time. Yeah, it's got like a noise gate or whatever. Yeah. But the problem with that is then, what if you're just like, uh, and you want that in there? I probably just ruined this one. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so um, if you were doing a World War II movie, would you call it the Garand or the Garand? Ooh. Mm. And then if you were doing a World War II movie. And you had to train the actors and everything. Would you teach them to keep their fingers off the trigger? See, there you go. That's the guy. That's the because I'm very correct. They didn't do that back then, right? So you... I, I've been noticing that a lot lately in movies. It's like period films, and they'll have their fingers off the trigger, and I'm like, oh, dude. Well, that's, but that's but John big... Moses Browning himself was like a, a trigger. Fight. Oh yeah, like, dude. Stoner Kalashnikov. All those guys posing with their guns. They all got finger <laughs> yeah. on the trigger. 
They're like, yeah. I know how to not pull it. So, so that's the thing. So, like, as a like a like a World War II reenactor, I see that kind of stuff all the time at events where dudes are, you know, keeping their finger off the trigger, or especially the uh, the hold, like the way they they have that like modern tactical low ready hold, like they're holding their M1s that way, which like guys guys back then didn't do that. Um, but like, there's yeah, there's lots of those little little sort of like modern pet peeves that bleed. You got to do their thumb so, over on an M1 carbine. Could you imagine correcting your World War II grandfather veteran like uh it's it's Garand. Yeah. Like, just imagine, like, just that's like a, that's a good you. that's a good point. It's like, yeah, you're like, gonna like, young, hey, he's the, French Canadian, like, shut up. This is America. That's probably what they Yeah, the guy that killed Nazis with his with his M one Grand calls it an M one Grand. It's like I, hey, I, 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 I doubt the guy cared. Like I really doubt he cared at all. He was like, I got paid, everybody's using it, feeling pretty good. Yeah, you I think he got any royalties for the uh, for the M14, Garand, or was he was he still around then? I don't even know when he when he died. Uh, it depends on how many years for the patent. Right for um, quite a while, a couple decades, I think. What was the question about the M14? Did he get royalties on it? Oh, that. Uh, yeah, I don't. I have to look it up. I don't. He had an ice rink in his house, though. Apparently, well, that's something. He's Canadian, that's so cool. yeah, it does does kind of does kind of make sense. Anyway, I'm avoiding work, so I should probably go do work. I guess. Well, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted. No problem. I'm avoiding trying to write about the Thompson Lagarde experiments. Ooh. Yeah, imagine trying to find a cute way of writing about that so all your fans don't just start vomiting in the comments. Yeah. No. I might have ordered a stuffed animal cow. Ah, very nice. No, it's going to get creepy. There's no uncreepy way to do it. Oh, I love it. I love it when you go creepy. Yeah, this is going to be like double penguins. Let's see. Alt history, I think, is next Next oh, up. Alt history? Oh, fun uh, stuff. I guess it was a weird thing that we mentioned at last show. And then I guess. Oh, yeah. What's and the, I triggered the everybody with my statement. Well, most of the comments on the podcast was about like the alt history, like just dis- discussing that. So I'll, oh, do yeah. it for the, I'll do it for the algorithm. Do it for them comments. <laughs> I was re-listening to it a bit. Like today, just like that little part. Oh, and um, sorry. Go but, ahead, Tom. Sorry. Oh, um, I was gonna say like I do think there was one part where the Germans could have won. You know, like that was when they were marching on Moscow. Like maybe if again, this is all conjecture, and we have already established that it's not realistic. But um, at one point, I think when like some of uh, Stalin's aides or like. Um, Molotov and some of them showed up to like ask him like what do you want to do he thought they were there to arrest him and so you know there might have been an opportunity there to get rid of Stalin and you know if the government collapses and they because they were getting ready to flee Moscow I think potentially because they were pretty close that might have caused like political upheaval maybe you would have had like a uh, Brest-Litovsk situation where they just kind of they're having like political upheaval and they just want to like sign a peace treaty so who knows on that one? But that was one point where I felt like maybe they could have, well, you know, they weren't in the war with the U.S., which was, that's a colossal mistake just because of our, our yeah. production capabilities. Like, Britain, they could, maybe they couldn't take them, at least not then, but Britain's not really going to be able to do anything. They're just going to sit in their island for a while and use their Navy. Stare angrily across the channel. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Drink tea. Oh, I, you so. I know, I know a, a scenario for, for our alt history discussion uh, today. Friggin a. Yeah. Okay, 
It's going to be Sweden joining the war. Sweden joining World War II. On which side? It does fuck all. So this is, that's the good question, right? Which side? Because... The Germans bought iron ore off of them. Yeah, the Germans bought iron ore off of them. And early on, Britain was planning to invade Sweden after Norway. There's a, I forgot the name of the plan, but that was there a was a plan, I think. Like he was yeah. for that. So it's like who invaded them first? Maybe, you know, maybe the Russians invaded them first. I feel like with how close they were with the Germans, they would probably flip to the German side. But that's kind of the thing. So like me being like a big Swede collector, everyone's like, ah, they're a neutral country, like their guns don't matter, you know, like neutral you know, people don't respect neutral countries' rifles, you know. They haven't gone through a war, I guess. It's not uh, not tested or something, but um, I'm like, they were real close. Like, Swedish cities got bombed during the war. Um, I mean, Swedish volunteers and stuff, but like, they had, there was like, the Russians on one side of them, you know, with Finland, and then the, the Nazis in Norway. Like, they they were pretty surrounded, and you know, and Britain had plans to invade them. Um, and it came, it came very, very close. So I've always, I've always thought about like, kind of what their contribution would be if they if if any you know if you know they're not like a huge country or anything like that but i, I do think they're a big part of the reason why the germans didn't actually invade sweden is because they were afraid that they just sabotage like the iron mines if i remember reading that right i think i read, read that in gerhard weinberg's uh, i can't remember it's like a total or called arms or something like that it's like this 900 page book i haven't read the whole thing just parts of it but i think that was a big concern because as long as they're kind of neutral and they're getting iron ore from like, okay, this is great. But if you try to invade them and they destroy those mines, well, now your ability to get these raw materials is diminished. And I think it was really good, like really good iron ore. Wasn't it like high quality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Swedish iron ore is amazing at the time. Yeah. There's something, there's something special in it that, that makes it kind of some of the better ore. But I wonder how much, like how much is of the Swedish iron is responsible for like, the uh the the stereotype or whatever of like high german quality and oh it's german steel that's a good you know that's a good product and it's like you know especially during during the war and, and early war it's like yeah well it's it's a good it's a good german product because it's swedish steel made well, swedish where did steel. the swiss get their iron ore i wonder because their their k31s and stuff are beautiful hmm. and i don't know how much they actually get of their own i mean they i they don't think they have a bunker that's why they're beautiful that's yeah that's why they're all dinged up well, I mean, they got they got used. They were used for you know for decades by guys out and you know exercising and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but I think, I think so, a lot of them. oh yeah, yeah, the butt stocks are pretty. Yeah, you've that's a big indicator of prices. I think is like this stock condition with them because very very common to find them with yeah chewed up chewed up stocks. But if you find one that's got like a real nice stock on it, that those those K thirty ones typically go for a little bit higher, but. No, Sweden got a lot closer, I think, to getting directly involved in the war than than uh, Switzerland. Because um, Swedish volunteers fought, you know, they they fought on both sides. Swedish volunteers joined the, you know, joined the German army. They they joined the Finnish army to fight, you know, to fight the Russians. Um, again, small small country, small population, or whatever. But it's something that I that I've I've thought about a lot. Just just you know, collecting Swedish guns. I'd like to do more research on what they did with flyers that crash there because that might give you some indication whereas like the swiss were kind of like if you come to the country we'll shoot you down we don't care oh, yeah. who the you swiss, are and then you yeah, can turn over but i think then yeah. the swedish kind of like turned some other like some down flyers or pow's or something or maybe 
people that they captured and they turn some of those back over the Germans. I don't I know wouldn't. if it was under us or not, but yeah, I think international <laughs> law, they're supposed to hold them for the remaining of the war, but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if the Swedes like just returned Germans to Germany sort of thing. Um, I know they transported Germans on trains during the war. There's a, there's a book that I have a memoir, German memoir, and they, they got onto Swedish trains and they, cause they were in Finland when the, when the Finns uh, switched sides during the war. And they had to get to, they were trying to get to Switzerland and then they rode on, or not, I mean, Swedish train. They tried to get to Swedish trains to, to get I, down to uh, Denmark. You wonder on the flip side, if the Germans did go into Sweden, like how, like if they decided to invade, would it be like kind of like a Norway where they just had a bunch of troops out there, even up to the end of the war, they had hundreds of thousands of troops there just kind of sitting there in case the allies tried to invade. And I, I think they were there like pretty far after D-Day. But of course, it's not a coast. It's not as much of a coastline as Norway, so maybe they wouldn't need to leave as many there. Mm. But they would have raw materials, and you have to guard. You'd want to guard those. I don't um, know offensively what they could do. A major problem that happened in Norway is the German Navy lost a lot of its destroyers and one cruiser. So they lost a lot of their smaller ships to be able to fight off the shores of Norway, Sweden, etc. So like if you look at the the what the Royal Navy did in the in the Norway campaign, they sunk the hell out of some German destroyers. There was a large battleship, I think, too, that they sunk. Was it Turpitz? That, was, the like that? that yeah. was interned in, or it wasn't interned. It was uh, kept uh, scuttled away in a Norwegian fjord. Um, but that was more like they wanted to use it as a threat to the Arctic convoys. So they kept it up there close to the Arctic convoys and it also kept the British trying to go get it. And they eventually did, but um, you know, a major problem if you're going to invade Sweden would be, they do have a lot of coastline between Sweden and Finland in the Baltic. So you would need smaller ships to be able to get in close to the, the harbors and the shoreline. So you could even engage in naval bombardment. So Danny, I'm reading this. There was a remark by Winston Churchill about Sweden, and it said that they ignored the greater moral issues of the war and played both sides for profit. Oh. So, so up until '43, uh, they basically took a stance of neutrality, but also favoring the Germans. So they allowed German troop movements through the area. Um, that was like an official treaty thing. They allowed Germans to take shore leave there. Um, iron ore was sold to German companies. Um, and then in 43, when they realized that Germany was going to probably lose the war, they started to switch. And in exchange for the Allies paying them, they stopped selling iron ore to the Germans. So they paid them the difference. Maybe in defense, maybe they were also just like, okay, the Germans are strong enough to invade us. Maybe we'll let them do what they need to do or want. And then once they were not as worried about them invading us, like, okay, now we can kind of cut them off a little bit. That's particularly what it is, is that at, essentially they, they set it as like, we're going to let them kind of do what they want to do to let us stay on our own. And then when it, when they realize that, oh, they're not going to win, We'll switch sides. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if the Germans invaded them, they're just going to probably roll them pretty easily. And then your country's occupied. So I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. 
I mean, the Swiss kind of, I wouldn't say they played both sides as much as they just were like aggressively neutral, but they did, they had dealings with both sides. I mean, yeah, they had, I think, to deal with the Germans because they were pretty much surrounded and they didn't, you know, if the Germans cut off, like, I think it was like their whole supplies or whatever, everybody would freeze in like a month. So, you know, you wonder how much of it is they're under duress or they had some kind of plan or a profit. Their plan was to do nothing and make it. But what do you what do you do? <laughs> I would do the same thing, nothing, and make money. Yeah, a friend yeah, of mine recently was like, a friend of mine. I was I was talking to him about neutral countries or something, guns from neutral. He was like, oh, screw them. They stay neutral in the war, so they're basically like they're they're terrible. They're terrible people or whatever for staying neutral for not getting you know for not getting involved in the war. And uh, it's like, man, that's a you're a tiny little country. Like that's a that's a tough yeah, it's a tough aspect. Call. Yeah, yeah, you're Luxembourg. Let's but, get all pissed off. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> your 60 man army. Yeah. Looks like I got, I got Danny, one plane. Let's do this. Danny, um, I'm reading this section here. It's called, it was called project big bin. So a German V2 rocket accidentally crashed in Sweden. And that's where a lot of the technology that it was the first captured V2 rocket that they traded to the allies for in exchange for spitfires oh man yeah you know the crazy thing is the first man-made object into space i think was a v2 yeah they because they go they went so high and the first the first pictures i think from space of earth were taken after the war and captured german v2 rockets but the americans they put uh just a camera on a v2 shot it up took pictures this thing says that the the people were were so excited at the spectacle of the rocket launch that he accidentally caused he accidentally instructed the rocket in the wrong direction. <laughs> it was like it didn't explode. Oh shit! No, no. They used to blow up, man. You ever see the videos of them things like falling over, and then you just see all the fuel run out of it, and then it explodes. Oh yeah, yeah. There was also a problem with ever... them air bursting as well. I heard that they made the fuel for the V twos out of potatoes and i forgot how many like tons of potatoes it took for like each v2 rocket to fuel up and all i could think of was like geez like they have like every world war the germans are starving and then to like just waste just thousands and thousands of tons of potatoes to make fuel like just for these just for these rockets man Wunderwaffe, mein kameraden yeah just for the propaganda that's what they were yeah all the all the uh like uh, memoirs, German memoirs that I read, they all sort of say the same thing. Like, the, you know, about like late in the war, that was one of the things that they keep hearing of the Wunderwaffe. And then they're going to they're gonna change the war at the last minute. I, I guess it I guess it played a role that way and kind of keeping saw, them from falling apart early. But. I saw a picture of uh, uh, Hitler and all the generals looking at a, a remote controlled scale model of a mouse, like doing, like going in a hole. And I was like, what the heck is this? It went in a hole. This will save us all. Like it's little, it's like literally the size of like like a like a monster truck, like a scale model, and it's like driving it around like like kids driving it around like, oh yeah, sweet, it's gonna go in the hole and it's gonna come out. It's like, no fuck what the hell is this? Was that the Goliath? No, that no, it was a scale model of a mouse. It was I guess to demonstrate the the tank design. Okay. Yeah, I think they just couldn't get it to go right. Just 
have to get it to go more than five kilometers an hour. It was a gigantic waste of time and resources. They never built like, one. Like most of whatever Hitler came up with. I built two. They built two hulls and one turret. They never combined them into one. You can look at one that's the hull, hull reconstruction and the turret in Russia. Yeah, I thought they slapped, yeah, like a turret from another one onto the hull from an... Yeah. yeah, from another one. and There's also a hull of an E-100 built. I don't think it had road wheels, but that was Ferdinand Porsche's weirdo transmission, ele- engines drive electric motors, hybrid kind of design. Anyways, they tried it with the Tiger P and the elephants, and it didn't work that well. Oh, Tiger, yeah, Tiger, yeah. Tiger Tiger, one, yeah, that, yeah, Porsche's. Yeah, Porsche's Tiger and the Ferdinand. Yeah, that's... Yeah. They were I neat. Watched a documentary on them. They're actually really cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're neat looking. The one that always amazed me uh, is the Sturmtiger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like a mortar on it. Stubby little, like, chode barrel. It's a rocket launcher, and it projects all the gas out of the rocket forward. So if you look at the the barrel, it's this giant hole, and there's a bunch of little holes around it, and that's so that way the blast doesn't go in the crew cabinet. It goes out the front of the gun. And my favorite thing is, so... Um, I don't know if anybody's seen this, but if anybody's ever played the game World of Tanks, um, they got a bunch of experts in armored warfare together and they did like a panel discussion. And they got the guy from uh, I can't one of the British museums. I can't remember. I can see his face. He's got a big stereotypical British guy mustache, old British guy mustache. But um, he was talking about the commander for one of the Sturmtigers, and there was like. This thing is utterly useless. <laughs> he was like, I'd rather it would be attached to like a half track versus having all of this armor on it because it's just pointless. They used him in this uh, Warsaw Uprising. Yes. Yeah. And he also, he also noted in his report, he said that it was additionally useless in that it caused so much damage that no troops could effectively move into the area. <laughs> it was like... Huh. It's pointless, it's useless, and it's too good at destroying things. Did you guys ever see the Comet plane? Like It's like a rocket that they just strapped oh, into. The, and then... uh, the British Comet? Oh, no, no, no. no. The, He's talking about the, the M- yeah. ME-163? 163. Yep. Yeah, it's basically a rocket that just goes up to like the height of the bombers in like five or six minutes, runs out of fuel, and then you... It doesn't even have landing gear, I don't think. No, it, it had a skid. skid. A lot of people just died, I think, when it, you know, if the fuel tank, you know, if the fuel caught on fire, it just blew up. The, it had to, when you go to land, they have to eject all the remaining fuel out of the plane because the fuel will explode. So they have to, if you have any left, you have to get rid of it and then you can safely land because if you don't, you will be a uh, road pizza, a flaming road pizza. Like, just give me a rifle. I'll, I'll take my chances in the foxhole. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, at the uh, at the reenactment last weekend, I uh, helped sort of reinforce the uh, semi-auto versus bolt action thing. I don't know if you guys heard, like a couple years ago, when uh, like Ian and Carl were doing a lot of the bolt action, like two gun action shoots. People were saying, like, I guess people were defending like bolt actions, saying like they're perfectly adequate or something, like in, in modern combat, even something like that. I don't know, saying. Basically saying they're they're fine. You don't like need a semi-auto, but they were uh, they were super nice. Uh, the, I brought a G43 to the reenactment, and uh, 
that was the first time that I've had a, a semi-auto at a reenactment because I usually bring the, the a bolt action. And uh, it was cool. It was good. It was good stuff. Can can confirm. Um, got a couple weird malfunctions. I got like a, a weird uh, like double feed type malfunction. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting. Like uh, like one one time, you know, this is one of those things. Like people when they look at like a gun and like okay, like it's got a removable box magazine, whatever. Um, and this is what it's capable of. But then when you actually take the gun out and use it at like at a range, that gives you another impression. But then when you use a gun in like uh, like a, in a situation that applies a certain amount of like pressure, so like if you're being timed like at a match or like at a reenactment or something like that, and then you tend to be a little bit more like clumsy or fumbly, and then that kind of gives you a whole another aspect I think of a of a gun, um, and uh, and sure enough, man, I, I I reloaded like I changed mags with the G43. And I don't know what I did, but like I clicked like the mag in like incorrectly somehow, and I got a I got a malfunction. Like I got like there's one in the chamber, and that you know that went off, and it didn't strip the next one. I was like, how did that even happen? But it was just uh, you know the action and stuff was happening, and I just wasn't wasn't paying attention, paying attention to all the guys shooting at me and all around me and stuff. And so would you have preferred to carry the 41 then because it's stripper clip fed with a fixed magazine? See, that's a good question. I actually stripper clip loaded the 43 a surprisingly amount like a lot um like if there was like a lull i would just it would just be easier to you know put the five rounds in it to like top up the magazine you know or at least just like increase it to like eight or whatever if it was down than to you know swap swap mags and then have to worry about like having a, a partial mag um if it you know if all things equal uh i think it'd be fine but the weight of the 41, man, I couldn't, <laughs> I can't imagine carrying around the, the 41. And it's because, you know, on paper, the 41 is only like a, you know, a pound and a half or pound, you know, something like that heavier. But like, dude, so much of that weight is out there on the muzzle and being, you know, further away with leverage, like working against you. It's like, it feels, it feels like five pounds more or something. Yeah. Like that, you know, it's like holding a brick at arm's yeah. length. Yeah, yeah. Actually, shouldering it and holding it—it's like it's real heavy, you know, on your on your support arm. So, I couldn't. I don't think I'd want to carry around a forty-one at an event specifically because of that. But I got to play with that guy's. Uh, one of the guys at the event had a he had a real um, MP44. It was marked MP44, but uh, you know the STG44 as a real full auto one. It was pretty sweet, and uh, I was just kind of I, I held it for a while and I was playing with it and stuff, and I was. After just like a couple minutes, it, it was kind of like weighing on me, and I was like, "Oh, this this is actually heavy." I was like, "This thing is like it's dense. It's a lot. It's a lot heavier than you like it than it looks. I think it's heavier than like a probably heavier than a than a mill day K. Um, very slick, very very modern feeling. I was I was gonna shoot it, but I never I never got a chance at the at the the reenactment to shoot it. But uh, it'd be pretty sweet. He had he had one of those, and he had a uh, PPSH forty one, a full auto one. That was, that was cool. Yeah, that stuff's awesome. Even get to see it. Yeah, yeah. It's quite the force multiplier in small units. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, it is for sure, man. Um, and those and those engagements, I could always tell where he was with that <laughs> with the SDG because mm-hmm. I could I could hear this is you know that that distinctive sound and the you know the rapid fire. 
Um, I think he kept it in in semi most of the time. It kind of makes sense. I think they did in the war too. Did yeah. you have to shoot the PPSH? No, no, didn't didn't get a chance to. One of our guys carries one of them. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that's. I think that thing is pretty dense too. Yeah, it is. It's heavier than it looks. But yeah, that guy. That was my first. A little bit, guys. I gotta help get my. I got a few more minutes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to just yeah head out whenever whenever you need to. Um. Okay. This 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 next part, I was gonna just read a few comments and see what you guys comments that I got on the YouTube channel and just kind of see what you guys have to say. Sure. These are. All right, so he commented on my French Moss 36 video because the title of this video, and I kind of knew that this would trigger the uh, Francophiles. Uh, it's, I called it mediocrity at its finest. Uh, and I, and I kind of mean that. Like it's, like it's mediocre, but it's like the best kind of mediocre. You know, the, the, the Moss 36. And, uh, and this guy uh, says, calling it mediocre in the usual sense is unfair. However... Except for the lack of manual safety, the rifle represents a high standard that all other bolt guns should strive to exceed. Okay, In that way, it is what the average bolt gun of its time should have been. The italicized should. The Moss 36 is a combat rifle, not a target rifle. It was designed to meet the needs of the ordinary rifleman, and as such, the lack of fiddly features like a windage-adjustable rear sight are entirely reasonable. Uh, Eugene Soner would later apply the same logic to the rear side of the early M16. Um, huh. And I've gotten a few videos or a few comments on the video of people kind of being like calling calling it like, well, it's not really not so but much mediocre. It wasn't supposed to be a frontline rifle. The yeah, exactly. The original goal of the 40, the Moss program was to give everyone in frontline combat a semi-auto rifle and everyone in rear uh line duties, the bolt action rifle, kind of like the M1 carbine program, but a little different. So yeah. like, it's I can't think be, about how it's outstanding in any way. Yeah, it's, it's not know. outstanding in any way. It's Whoa, whoa, whoa. I let them order the equipment they needed. Yeah, that's true. They're like, hey, can we get the milling machines for making this semi-auto? Whoa, 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 semi-auto. <laughs> uh, well, we, uh, this bolt action. Yeah, okay, you can order the machines for that. Didn't it also utilize the same uh, wood furniture? Or am I thinking of something else? Maybe buttstock. Yeah, maybe. I, like I would need to review, but this is probably one of those French things where it's like, no, totally. The RSC uses most of the parts of the Labelle. That's yeah. I'm it be... doesn't. Didn't the Germans uh, kind of borrow the idea of like the bayonet for the FG42, like how it just like yeah. slides yeah, in and tuck away? So. Yeah. But suppose That's I mean the original concept was to have minimal or rather maximum parts interchangeability between your first and second line rifles and then to save the money also the french still had somewhat colonial concerns so like your notion is hey we can we can get a lot done for less but then it's it's france so it all goes to committee and then it gets kicked around for years and then you have to change things so i to be honest with you <laughs> i'd have i'd have to go do a lot of reading to see how much actually ended up being able to like there's the expectation, and then I don't know what the reality is because I have to go and back. And then we go to war, and everything goes to shit. <laughs> so yeah, and then the Germans invade and push their shit in, and then we have this problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think people that I've noticed lately, a lot of people kind of taking up for the Moss Thirty Six and the kind of French guns in general. But I think part of that is you know this revival and 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 liking French guns. But then also, like, early on, Alex with TFB TV, like, when he made that one video, like, defending the Moss 36, 
And then uh, I think Bloke, you know, Bloke on the range, kind of, you know, defending the, defending the Moss 36. Um, I think it's sort of changing people's perceptions. I don't think anybody's saying it's bad. You're not saying it's bad. No, I'm not saying it's bad either. Yeah. I mean, even no, when you watch the video, I never said you, it was bad. You can't get an overcorrection, which is that you have this sort of dumping on French guns and this dumping on Japanese guns and dumping yeah. on Italian guns. Yeah. And then when you go back around and try to tell people, no, 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 it's actually, it's not like that at all. It, it, this is how it was meant to be used. This is why it is this way. Like, I think, especially for the U.S. in, you know, post-war culture, the, the Moss 36 is not a hunting rifle by any means. But we are very accustomed to having military rifles that then are decent hunting rifles in American culture. Like, if you're given a Moss 36 as American, you're just like, what the heck is this? Like, why did they do this? This makes it terrible for hunting. And, I, and I'm not trying to, like, I know that's an oversimplification, but that's, it is how our surplus market tended to think until very recently. Like, Well, I mean, it's the individual marksman theory, too, with the U.S., right, Athias? Uh, Yeah, the old Buffington leftovers. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, we went into World War II still thinking of sort of the infantry riflemen ahead of the machine gun. Yeah. I mean, it's but, not like we've ever been really keen on it in terms of, like, a military forward thinking in that regard. But I think it's just an American taste thing that then made us sort of incompatible with what the Moss 36 was doing in their, well, in a surplus market especially. I don't know that we wouldn't have understood it in a military sense. But we, we again, everybody's got to remember the original collector's market is not a military appreciation market. The original collector's market is a hunting or uh, home protection or whatever target shooting, whatever the case may be. It's a sport market mm-hmm. that now more recently, and that's why there's so many bubbas, right? Because before it was about utility. Only now do we have a situation in which we have an overabundance of income and we can just collect things that we don't really use. And so that's changed things starting i guess you really start to see the shift in like this the 70s 80s 90s it just starts taking over it does always feel like more of a cheaper rifle well it's because it's not feature rich yeah well it's meant to be economic yeah it is economic i don't know i'm I'm not saying it's bad either don't get me wrong yeah i mean I don't I don't in terms of labor i can't say how cheap or not it is because people say it's simple but then it is milled it's not a stamped gun and I don't, you know, you look at something like an Arisaka that's been made off of a tube. You know what I mean? You have you have cylindrical steel and then you mill out the shapes you need. That's a fairly economical rifle. So I'm not really sure. Like, I again, I'd really love, I think the, the least appreciated thing that we have right now is sort of the machine tool technology. Because you'd have to have someone who is extremely familiar with machine tool, which I am not. Then you'd have to have them be a historian of machine tool technology in order to understand what was available to make the cuts at the time or how much labor would be put into them. And then you could let them analyze a rifle and start to decide how many operations went into doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. To me, just sort of based off the lack of features, I would sort of say it's probably, or, you know, if it's, yeah, if it's just a rear echelon type of thing, they don't necessarily didn't didn't put too many uh too many bells and whistles on it but i mean well, i guess it kind of has everything it needs like i don't know like, the, the lack of I, features is just lack of doctrine they don't use safeties like they chamber when they're ready to go you know they don't do windage fire i mean none of their rifles before had windage fire so why add it now tom do you need something me yeah you you were activating i didn't know if you were trying to say something oh that must have pushed the button i didn't 
Oh, okay. Just make sure. Elthias, when he when he brought up when you brought up on he really your video on the Italian rifles really solidified to me, and also the 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 Russian rifles too, which is that like they're as good as they could have made them. Like what? That's that, that uh, state for the Italian rifles especially. Yeah, the Italians especially the Russians. I almost feel like they bit off more than they could chew. Like the, I don't know why they stuck with that thing because that must have been very labor intensive to make. Although they, you know, to the czar and to the communist labor was just there, right? But I still feel like they probably could have. I think Russia would have been better off with a Carcano in some ways. I'm still, I would still like to do some like really cold weather testing of one of those guns. But I live in the deep south um, because I'm just <laughs> it's mildly fuck up here. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm mildly curious if, say, a Kakarno would lock up faster than a Mosin for some reason I don't see. I don't understand why it would. They don't have as many mating surfaces. But I'm just vaguely curious because the Mosin to me seems like so many moving parts for a bolt-action gun. Why was it that the Finns didn't like the Carcanos they got? Didn't they, they get rid of most of those? They put them in second-line service? I mean, to be fair, I think the Finns had more of a marksman culture, and they were really good at accurizing their Mosins. I don't think they wanted to set up an entire program for accurizing Carcano. Right. They just weren't but, used to it either, so they're just like, all right. Yeah, knowing them, if they had actually sat, if they had been given two million, you know, way before the Mosin, and they they had a program in place for accurizing them, it might have gone the other way. You never know. Um, although I will say the Carcano didn't come to them with like a. Did they get? The, I can't remember. Did they get the seven three five or did they get the? They got the sevens. Yeah, they got the sevens. Yeah, that can also have some long-range implications, too, that they might not have liked. Although it was a decent cartridge. I mean, there's actually a really good cartridge in a lot of ways, but I don't know if that fit into their doctrine at the time or not. I'd have to actually know more about the Finnish shooting culture at that time. And also, let's be fair, you get a hold of a Carcano, it feels light, which makes you think it's cheap. It, yeah. the, bolt, the bolt waggles everywhere, which makes you think it's cheap. You know, it, it's, it doesn't exude confidence right but it doesn't yeah. the reason it doesn't exude confidence is for things that are actually immaterial to what it's supposed to do like it's supposed to shoot straight and shoot flat and shoot accurate and it's supposed to be you know reliable which other than the clips that are now worn out you know i see a lot of people with feed issues but they're using clips three four five six seven hundred times that were supposed to be used once so or even if they weren't supposed to be used once, like when they were gathered up, they were put through a forming die that nobody has anymore, you know? Well, guys, I got to get going. Um, right, Tom, well, I'm glad you could join Tom. Yeah, thanks. See you later. See ya. Yeah, with I, uh, oh, sorry, I, I quote you. I quote you quite often to, uh, to the Mosin fans, which is from your, from your video on the, the, you know, the M91, which is uh, the Mosin was built on an inherently flawed bolt. Um, the most it's just it's just a it's just a completely out of order priority. It's it's the uh, it's the antithesis of holistic design. It's like okay, we're going to design this one thing. Okay, that worked. Now we're going to add this next part. Okay, that worked. Now we're going to add this next part. It's just it's an amalgam. Yeah. Then this happens. Oh, we can fix that. We'll just add this to here. Yeah. And at yeah. no point did anybody have the confidence or the ability to go back. I mean, it's really the anti John Moses Browning, right? So like Browning will conceive of a system and then he'll try to apply it in his mind and he he doesn't even write stuff down because he's constantly looking for the interplay of all the parts because he's doing it holistically he's designing a system and the mosin is more of a sequence yeah which uh, the main reason why i sort of quote you there is because 
it seems like a lot of people when they think of the Mosin, they and I, and I've and I've heard them say this is that like yeah, it's a really primitive gun, but it's meant to be really rugged, and that's why it's so primitive, simplistic, whatever in, the, in their minds. Well, it depends uh, on what. First of all, it's not primitive. No, like that that, that drives me nuts because everybody's like it's so primitive. I'm like, okay, take one apart. There's more parts than a Carcano in there, that's for sure. Yeah. Like, there's there's as many, like, arguably the Springfield is the same number of parts to a certain degree, but, well, no, because discount the magazine. I'm just thinking about the bolt for a second. That's how lost I am. Take the bolt apart, or take the magazine apart, and you've got real problems. But even just on the bolt assembly, you've got that collar that's, all its purpose is is to prevent out-of-battery rotation. And yet it's attached all the way at the front and it runs all of that tension through like a big extended fork. And it's just like, why? why? And the answer is like, well, we had a separate bolt head because that's good, right? And you're like, uh, arguably good, arguably, like it depends on what you're doing. If you're from an armor level, sure, separate bolt head's great. It's good for head spacing. You are using a rimmed cartridge though. So I don't, anyway. Yeah. So, and then, and then there's so many things and it's like, Look at the Arisaka, right? The Arisaka is beautifully simple, the Type 38, which is not an Arisaka, it's arguably the Nambu. It's beautifully simple, right? Fewer parts than the Mosin. However, the assemblage is a little complicated in the sense that they have to weld the rear cap together and some other things, right? So constructing it, probably on par, a little easier than constructing a Mosin. Fewer parts overall. And it's a rimless cartridge, which means it has to have a gas check system built in. The Russians don't even really have a gas system built into that gun because it's a rimmed round, so that does the gas check for you. So what's the excuse? Like, why are there all these parts going everywhere? Why couldn't they design an out-of-battery system that wasn't a fork sticking down the entire length of the gun? And the only reason it was there is it's because, like, well, if we're already breaking the bolt in half, for the, well, not in half, but we're cutting the bolt in order to have the bolt head and the bolt body, then if we need to have this thing... We'll install it in between the two. That way it's less wasted space. But then when you go to rotate that bolt handle, you're turning across two interfacing surfaces before you get to the bolt lugs. And you're also meaning resistance from components that are in, that are interacting on a, a rail that goes all the way to the rear that then kind of pads out the relationship between that, that surface and the, the receiver. And it's just like, it's just so much slop. And if you get stuff in between the locking bar and the bolt body, it will lock up. I mean, I'd be really interested to see how much you can improve a Mosin bolt just by getting rid of the out of battery or the um, out of uh, the anti rotation device. Sorry, the D, the, for the I don't have a proper word for this because I say out of battery safety, but that's not right because that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the uh, preventing you from decocking the rifle when the bolt is back. I don't know that there's a concise term for that, or it's slipped my mind. But it's just that's all that stupid tine is doing sticking out there. It's not doing anything else for it. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised nobody's like fixed it. I don't but, know. Because uh, because I you know people like it's very common for people to understand that like a 9130 is not like a great rifle, you know. And if you had a 9130, people wouldn't expect it to like perform super well. But you put a new barrel and a new stock on that, and then put a little SA stamp on it. And then all of a sudden, it's like the best bolt action ever made. Well, to be fair, they did a better job of fitting their parts. That's why they feel so much better because they've they've taken a lot of the slop out. They've 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 put a spring back on that trigger so that it's not just flicking around, feeling weird on you, right? It gives you feedback. They've uh, redone the barrels entirely. The original barrels were just label barrels. That's all they were. They just copied the label. 
So, you know, they cleaned up a lot and they saved a lot because they didn't have to. Like, people are like, well, if it's so bad, why the Finns use it? And you're like, well, because it's a lot of money to build a receiver yeah. and a bowl and all this other stuff. And it's just right there. Why not just pick the best fitting stuff and reconfigure it and polish it down and, and hand fit it? And that's so much cheaper than having to make it from scratch. And I mean, speaking from owning both, like my worst accurate rifle is my 9130, which is like minute of pie plate. And my best is my 2830 finish rifle. Like they did a good job. Yeah, but they put the care into it, number one. But number two, yeah. they could have done that with less effort with a different gun. That's the thing. Is yeah. it's like They didn't go out and say, we will use the Mosin above all others. It's that's that's what they had. And they were very clever with it. But if they were given a different gun, they probably would have done even better. Like, honestly, a lot of that also goes to shooting competitions in the Scandinavian countries, which is something I'd really like to explore some more. But look at what happens in, like, Sweden and Denmark and Norway. You get these guns that they develop that are adopted, quote-unquote, as marksman's rifles, but then... They're never issued. They're not actually military rifles. What it is, is there's this Scandinavian uh, shooting matches that are happening every year. And it's become an obsession for them, a la American football. And so they can only shoot with military rifles. And so when when their rifle teams start getting shellacked, they go to the military and they have them adopt a uh, rifle for marksmen's, you know, in case... But we're not issuing them. But they're they're official. We wrote it down on paper. They're official. Oh, the I mean, Swedish ones. Yeah, it happens. Don't adopt target rifles. It happens in all of those countries, right? Except for Finland, who doesn't have a ton of money to throw around on doing that. Although I'm sure they had some exemption to that that I'm just not thinking of right now. But in Finland, they have to compete with their Scandinavian neighbors in these competitions, and they're they're trying to use Russian rifles. So they have to go to town accurizing these Russian rifles. They could have also just had the Swedish Mauser to begin with, and they wouldn't have had to do half the work they had to do. Or, you know, they could have had the Krag, which they would have had to limit their uh, ammo pressure, but otherwise it would have been fairly accurate, you know. So there's just there's just things they have to do to compete on that level. I don't know that Finland would have gone as far as they did if they weren't constantly competing with their Scandinavian neighbors in their shooting competitions. Yeah, so here's here's the question, right? Because anytime anyone criticizes Mosins or whatever, a lot of people shoot back with uh, old Simo, right? And the question is, did Simo rack up so many kills because he was using a Mosin, or did he rack up so many kills despite having a Mosin? Honestly, I I don't think it depends on the rifle in this case. Yeah, I think if you gave him a rifle that shot where he pointed it, he would do what he was doing. I I don't think I've ever seen anything coming out from him in, like written or anything like that where he was like lauding the Mosin's accuracy or anything like that. He, he didn't seem like the kind of person to he, he, like he's like Othaya said like anything you would have been handed to him his job was to shoot Soviets. I mean as long as the gun had a certain amount of precision that man could deliver accuracy I'm sure. Yeah. I mean now, the most deadly German sniper used a Mosin. Oh like, with the PU? With a PU. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not up on snipers, but yeah, it's there's a famous photo of and and he carried a Mosin with a PU scope on it, or maybe his PEM, whatever, doesn't matter. Did uh, he rack, did he rack him up in early war? No. Okay. The Russians had like the Russians were the only ones really running a sniper program at the beginning of World War Two. 
Yeah, the Germans were bored behind in the sniper program in both oh, wars. Everybody abandoned it after World War One. It's really wild. Like all this stuff was developed, and then everybody just left it. Like just dropped it cold. And then the Russians kind of came back around to it vaguely right before the war. I mean, as far yeah. as I understand, I still have to do a lot more reading on World War Two. That is, the, I'm going the, from deep memory now. The I Germans guess. were into like they had like a quasi like DMR like concept where they didn't necessarily have a lot of these you know high power optics. But you know they were they had those little you know like were they the ZF ones on the Canadians those little like one and a half power little straw tube scopes and then they had the uh, you know the was it the ZF four on the G forty threes and stuff yep um, it's like they weren't super geared more towards like the specific sniper role as far as just trying to increase as much people's you know. Um, shooting capability at once just kind of like a like a broad stroke like it'd be better if four guys had a cheaper less good scope than one guy had a very good scope maybe is what they're what they were more planning on but i know early on the dmr role of a squad yeah i get that yeah but early on with the g43 which is why like um they all have the threaded muzzles and stuff was um hitler actually i think he ordered it that he wanted uh, one soldier in every squad to have a scoped suppressed G43 in every squad as as like the DMR guy with you know with the obviously semi-auto G, you know DMR and because uh, he thought that that would be very very beneficial and you wouldn't do something like that like with a sniper you wouldn't put a sniper in every squad that'd be you know a lot more specialized rare sort of sort of thing but. I think they had a more of a DMR sort of concept in the war than a, than really like a, a sniper sort of concept, which still kind of irks me when people refer to like a G forty three with a scope as like a sniper rifle. My sniper G forty three. It's because anything with an optic is a sniper rifle, Danny. That's how it works. Yep. Yep. That's it. So I, I sold my PSL. Everybody, when I was trying to sell it, everybody was like, "Oh, you selling a sniper rifle? No. God <laughs> dang it! PSLs are not <laughs> sniper rifles." Oh man, it's fun God. to shoot though. Uh, yeah, it was fun to shoot. Uh, what was another comment, Danny? Oh, okay. Let me see. Uh, I know I had some good ones lately. Uh, ah, somebody commented on my Russian capture video. He says, "HK boy commented, bruh, why the Russians didn't copy the K the Car ninety eight K rifle instead of continue producing the garbage rod?" I like that he started it with bruh. <laughs> I mean, we've already got to discuss this, wasn't it? Yeah, it was we like, actually covered that one. It was very, like economy, yeah. there you go. economy of scale. Go. They've already yeah. done it all. Like, why would you? You can't just switch <laughs> <Nah>. it all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. Steve commented on my uh, testing the Jungman, and he said there is probably a place in hell for anyone who attempts this. Do not do this. <laughs> yeah, Danny. Because when you put dirt on a rifle, it destroys it. And yeah, don't, wet, obviously you're not going to clean it wet, afterwards. Wet dirt melts steel. I don't know if you knew that. that as soon awful. as you put wet dirt on a on a gun, that steel just start yeah just just melts away to nothing. I've asked people specifically like, hey, like why, like why, like what does it do? And they're like, oh, it 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 just you know it it gets in the the, the tolerances or the whatever. And I'm like, well, what it like what what does it do like specifically? Why do you think it's bad? Or I'll, I'll rust it. Well, like it's not going to rust. I'm going to clean it. I'm like what's 
Like nobody can really articulate like why mud testing is particularly. When I mean, you could have get, a like, catastrophic failure or whatever. That's exactly what it. Yeah, like worst I mean, case, whatever. But I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna cause a, a catastrophic failure. But you don't know. Other than other than that, I think it's because yeah. it's viewed as like a collector's piece. It's, it's not really used as like viewed as a tool it's anymore. It's viewed as disrespectful. Is what it is. That's what people yeah. are saying. It's viewed as disrespectful because it's ex- in their minds it's expensive, and it could possibly be also expensive. And therefore, you're disrespecting the fact that they can't own it because it's too expensive, and they're and you're just wasting it essentially. See, I would take the like. I agree with you. And my point of view when I watched you do those videos was, "Cool, blow yours up, buddy. I won't blow up mine." And then you did it, and it didn't blow up, and I'm like, "Hey, now I know." Yeah, they don't. They don't blow up, man. Yeah, it, yeah. It's almost like these military guns, like they kind of knew they were gonna get dirty. Yeah, you're gonna hug it while you sleep. So should I mud test the Lee Navy then, Danny? Uh, most definitely, yes. It is your American right to do whatever you choose yeah. with your weapon, yeah. sir. I did have somebody say like, "Thank you for mud testing." I forgot what it was. I think the, my, the scar, the scar 17, when I mud tested it like years ago with, with like Florida mud, because I guess the only mud was like, uh, was Carl's like desert mud, which people don't think not good enough mud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's sandy mud. It's not good mud. Yeah. I love the people that argue that like it's dirt guys. Did you test that with a viscosimeter? Here we go. Somebody commented on my five things to avoid at gun shows video. <laughs> What happened in the good old days when you purchased firearm and local stores offer firearm and it was cheap back then? (laughs) Come on, Danny. You got to have better stuff than that rather than people that are barely literate. (laughs) I don't know why that was just that just that one just tickled me. We're reading people's drunk comments on Danny's videos. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, another guy commented on the same video. I work at a place with a bunch of old tanks. So is it okay if I bring one of them? What? what? I don't. I don't know. Like that was. That was it. His guy's name is Scissors. You could bring a tank to a gun show. I mean, the people who own the roads are probably going to be pissed at you. But you know, whatever. It's your American right to do whatever you want with your piece of hardware, sir. Yeah. Okay. Another comment on that video is anyone who asks, "What's your bottom price?" is an asshole of a negotiator. Same for the other side of the coin. People who just want to make an offer or want you to make an offer. I never did like the you make an offer thing. Well, if the, if the conversation oh, yeah. is, if I say, what are you asking? And you come back with you Whoa. make an offer. That's annoying to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. For me, too. I hate that. When there's there's like a gun or something on the table. And yeah. you're like, hey, how much do you want? Well, make me an offer. It's yeah. Per- perfectly normal between friends. But when you're the one at a table set up, you know what I mean? Like, it's fine if you're the guy walking around because you haven't really... I don't know. There's some so, there's some social distance. There's a difference there, right? Like, oh I've dang! Matthias said the magic word. Dang it! We're gonna get hit. <laughs> there's some there's some social difference there where it's like you have this table. You're representing yourself as a retailer, not necessarily like a four four seven three retailer, but like you are the one attempting to sell at the moment. Yeah, and, it, and you're you're selling your stuff, so obviously you know what you want for it. Just put a tag on it and put that amount, and we'll go from there. I usually just annoy them when they do that. I'll just be like, okay, 100 bucks. And they're like, whoa, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, $103. Uh, 101, 102. And then they, when they say whatever they say, and I'm like, look, you're using a lot of words here, but you know, if you just gave me a number, I would understand what you actually valued the whatever at. 
Like it's I'll just one of those things. Like it's here. far more efficient if you just give me your value. I would even say among friends, it's the same way. Like I have a couple friends that I would buy guns off of, and he's like, "Just make me an offer." I'm like, "No, see, I don't mind it among friends, like Othias is saying. But if you're set up and you're at a facility selling something, and you don't have an idea of where to start, then that's on you." Yeah. Arguably, your friend is, if he's actually your friend, the way a friendship's supposed to work. Your friend is actually looking for a number that you are comfortable with, so that he does not overcharge you. Or you guys are not so far apart that you just can't be sorted out. True. Yeah. I I always feel like I, if I give a low number, I'm putting them out. So I was, you know. No, I've been there because I've had friends be like, yeah, well, what's your number on this? I'll be like, ah, I'll yeah. be honest with you. I'm comfortable at like 450. And then they'll go, hmm, well, I had five and it can meet me there. And I'll be like, yeah, OK, I'll stretch to five. You know what I mean? Like, and, and by the way, that's not like I know that sounds like a thing that you hear at a gun show, too. But like with friends, it, it can be very direct, you know. Oh, yeah. I've bought in, like, 30 guns off of Danny now. I know how this dance goes. <laughs> yep. Whenever Danny gets bored. Yep. He calls me up. Yeah, okay, no, you still got to get my, you still have to get my Ross. Hey, I had to buy a pickup, okay? The company took my truck. <laughs> Damn. I mean, it's sad. I'm an adult. Danny, have you gotten any more Filipinos commenting on your Colt 1911 video? Uh... It's like every day, that's, isn't not, it? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty often. Yeah, people still comment on that all the time, like they're trying to solve the mystery. Uh, yeah, it's usually just like small stuff, like this guy's pointing out, like how the word caliber spelled on a slide is is different. Um, I should have tried to buy that gun, man. When I was at that gun shop, that gun shop closed down in Utah, but I should have tried yeah, to buy it. You should have checked. You should have bought it, man. That's pretty. I mean, you're never going to see another one, probably. Yeah, no. No, what I really like is one of the Vietnam conversion 1911s when they changed it to the to the 762 talk. I love those. Oh, see, they add that to the conversion list. There you go. Oh crap! Those things are cool. <laughs> There's so many conversions. Oh, I did a. I did, I've done some videos on like books, like little book reviews, and people usually comment on those, like that book's not forty dollars anymore; it's two hundred dollars, stuff like that. Oh, how dare the supply and demand market change! Yeah, and and the fact that nobody's printing this book anymore. So many books, too many to like. Everybody's like, "Oh, oh, you have to buy the book," and I totally agree. You have to buy the book. But which book? There's so many. Well, and the problem isn't necessarily. It's also depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. Like when we Tom was here, we were talking. There's there's not really a book on Dutch M95s, is there? Not. No. I don't know of any in English. I don't know. There might be like. A, a book where there's like a couple pages talking about them or something like that. I have a stack of books about them, but they're all in Dutch. Yeah, exactly. I don't speak Dutch. The only Monlicker book in English is uh, Scarlatta's, and it has a fair number of issues. I agree. We just talked about it before you got here, Thais. Because yep, I bought because I bought an AOI uh, long rifle from Tom, and Scarlatta's book says that that's a Greek marking. Yeah. He's a um, he does a lot of cataloging where it's just listing guns, but I don't know how much depth he goes into on his research or what his references are at all. I mean, a lot of them are really confusing. It's like where, like that one, where did you get that from? I haven't read the book in a number of years, but there's just so many things in there. I'm just like, what in the world? Well, is this the only reason I know that it's in there is because I had a guy message me on Reddit because I've become the M95 guy. I'm on the Reddit Millsurp group and. They, he was like, hey, this book says this is this. And I'm like, what? Because I don't have Scarletta's book. 
and I, he sent me a picture of it, and it just lists it out. And I think it says something like, "This means this in Greek," and it's like he has no proof of that at all. It's just like this means this, and it's just matter of factly stated. And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, it's bizarre. The um, Boss Martin says the best book on the Dutch rifles, but they're uh, hard to get on occasion. Like even if you can, you know, translate the Dutch. But the uh, we tried doing some episodes on them. There's one rifle I can't account for. It's making me very mad, which is that there's a. They're not rare either, by the way. They're dirt common. There's a uh, one of the uh, Netter Indy, the Nil rifles. Um, there's a carbine with a very particular barrel band arrangement and bayonet lug that just Boss Martins has no categorization for it. And his suspicion is that they were assembled um, by the Indonesians after. Uh, independence but before they switched over to 303 entirely or perhaps it was being used as some second line thing to use up 6.5 but they only appear in 6.5 and uh, they just don't seem to be accounted for any any of the dutch literature and they look like any of the others i mean if you put them in with everything else you wouldn't think oh that must be modified in some way man i've seen a few of those uh 303 dutchies over the years and i wish i would have bought one they're usually pretty poor shape I've got yeah. one. Uh, the one with the muzzle brake. I think there's three versions in 303. Yeah. We were talking about it earlier. Yeah, there's a couple of different muzzle brakes and uh, something else. Yeah, they're terrifying. Yeah, I think I've been getting more and more into the weird conversion rifles. I have. I'm I'm very proud of one that I bought. Uh, God, it's only been a couple months, but I just it just turned up in one of my searches for actually a revolver. And uh, oh, here we go, recent acquisitions. Yeah, yeah, recent acquisitions. Yeah. Well, no, I saw a Dutch carbine. It, I was like, well, I'll put in like a real low bid and see what happens. And it, it bid out, and I got it in. And I got it because it was in a um, when I, I was just looking at the gunbroker photos or whatever, and it looked like it was shootable, and yet it was one of the East Indies ones. So like, I didn't. It looked at it. I was like, I was like, there's probably a little rust under the stock, but it's like the cleanest one I've ever seen from you know the East Indies. So I'll put in a low bid. And it got in, and uh, it went through my buddy, the FFL, and he was just like, yeah, it's pretty cool, all matching, huh? And I went, what? And I had to stop and look at it, and it's, it is all matching to the freaking screws. And I was just like, I've never seen this from an East Indies Dutch mom. That, this that just ended up in a bunker somewhere, never got yeah. touched. Or it left with them when they left the region. It oh, it's possible, yeah. An actual yeah. Dutch boat, because the Indonesians would just, like, I mean, they went through all that stuff. Yeah, so it's just like I can't believe I actually have a. I mean, it's all it's all late pattern. It's not like a fantastically cool like unicorn one, but I mean, just the fact that it's not jacked up and it's all matching is unbelievable. Yeah, that's cool. Did you see that uh, the the Chinese Mauser carbine and and seven six two by thirty nine with the with the folding bayonet on the barrel recently? No, and Gunbroker. I uh, forgot who bought it. Um, He's a, he's a guy in the Mauser group that he posted it after he bought it, but it got up to like fifteen hundred. I was watching it; it it like doubled in price in the last you know like thirty minutes of the auction, like like they do. But when it was around seven eight hundred, I was like, I think I'm gonna get this thing because that's just so like uh, it's it's pretty cool. This uh, is it a Mauser barrel or an SKS barrel? Mm, I'm not sure. I, I thought it was an SKS barrel. You sent me the link because it had the the uh, attached bayonet. Yeah, but I didn't know if that was just like they they you know cut down the Mauser barrel and just welded the the bayonet onto it mm. or something, or if what it's is, an actual. Yours is they a did type, 
Type 38, right, Danny? Yeah, yeah. Mine's a Type 38. It has, I believe it's the, because it has the Type 38 long rifle rear sight on it, um, but it has an SKS front sight. So I think that they just attach the front mm. sight to it. But I know that some of those they put SKS barrels on the, mm, yeah, on the 38 receivers. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a, a bolt weird action one. rifle and seven six two by thirty nine would be a lot of fun. I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's my it's my wife's favorite favorite one to shoot because it's cheap and you know light recoiling. It's a it's a fun little shooter. I had a I had a British guy shoot it. I think that was the first gun he ever shot. What an odd place to start. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know, man. Oh, dude. Okay, what? so I was. I'll tell a story later. I'll tell us oh, the story off the okay. podcast. <laughs> podcast story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. canceled. <laughs> it's still an odd place to start. Like, hey, I've never shot a gun before. All right, well, they made like five of these. Here you go. Go to town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had like just enough whiskey where I'm like starting to tell, tell these stories. I'm like, no, I'm being recorded. I should. I, I mean, my first gun was a Chilean 1895, which is not one that you'd be like, oh, that's a common one to start with. Yeah, no, that's kind of a kind of a random, unappreciated one, really. That's because what, um, Danny? What's the best millimeter? Seven millimeter is mm. the best millimeter. It's, it's God's own caliber, man. You know, my uh, a guy recently commented on my Chilean Mauser Revolution video. Um, I appreciate your knowledge about my country's history. I can assure you that not many people here would know the information displayed here. So was, I've actually heard a lot of that from people that I've mm-hmm. spoken to uh, from Reddit that are from different countries. Like when I've posted my Siamese Mauser, there's been people that are Thai, and they're like, I've never seen this before. I didn't even know these existed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've never expected to see something in Thai with Thai writing on it on this subreddit, and I'm like, "What?" And he goes, "Like I've never seen this before." It's kind of high praise, indeed. Like, I mean, it's pretty neat, but I mean, yeah, yeah. like the, I mean, they, the the culture of surplusing it to the your local groups just didn't really exist yeah. in a lot of places. My uh, my Egyptian uh, battle rifles video. I've had a few Egyptians comment on their stuff like, you know, hey, thanks for making a video about our guns. Nobody nobody cares about them or something like that. And they got some cool stuff. They got the Keems, they got the mm-hmm. FF49s. Yeah, they do. The Egyptians have a lot of a lot of cool like funky guns cuz they like adopted a lot of different designs and then changed them, you know, changed them up. Yeah. So those are those are pretty neat. The Rashid um, being the fuck you to the SKS. Yeah. yeah exactly. Dude, every Every time I think of a Rashid, I just think about the time I could have bought one. Oh, you could have, Danny, but you didn't. Yeah, it's not. It's just one of the just one of the things I think of late late at night. One of the one of the gun regrets. Was wasn't that one of the ones I told you to buy? Mm, I think I don't know if I was on the. I don't know if we were on the group chat back then. I don't know. That's when I lived in uh, Saint George, Utah. Mm, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know if I took any pictures of it or anything. I just saw it. Ah, oh, fuck! It was like four hundred dollars or something stupid. Oh, something stupid. Yeah, you yeah. you've always complained about it. And he, well, he had two of them. Was the thing, and one was like four hundred dollars, and one was like three hundred dollars because the three hundred dollar one was like rougher. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're thinking. Danny's an idiot. Yes, I'm looking yes. towards your. I just direction. had no idea. I just had no idea what it was, man. Like I, I didn't know what Rashid's were. I just thought it was a weird looking SKS. Like I was, I'm not into post war. I mean, know, it is a weird looking SKS. Auto. I mean, I didn't, you know, 
I had no idea of value or whatever, you know. And to me, yeah. I'm just wanting, I'm just wanting like World War II bolt actions and stuff. That's what I was. I wasn't even into pistols back then, you know. I gotta so. get you into a nice Makarov. I don't know. Uh, Post war, man. Uh, I'm telling you, man. You once you go Mac, you never go back. Like I mean, I've, 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 I've come close. I've, I've flirted with some, some German Macs, and I have an East German Mac. Yeah. Like that's what Sam has, right, Danny? I don't know. Doesn't he have Makarovs? Or am I wrong? They have at least three. Are, are Sam in the group? Yeah, I think he has a an East German one, doesn't he? That he got from his grandfather. Oh, I don't know. They're amazing pistols, and I love them. I actually carried mine. It was my first carry gun was a Bulgarian Makarov because at the time it was cheaper than an LCP. It's a pocket oh. carrier. All right, so this is this is the video that I probably get like it's the most controversial probably, and it's the ones where I get like the the most like emotional comments. And it's on uh, how I picked the best bolt action. It's that video. Oh, God, yeah. Where all I do is I, I just lay out my points. Real simple, just objective, objective truths to me, right? Like, rimless is better than rimmed. You know, bolt handle being behind the receiver bridge is better than forward of the receiver bridge. Wait, uh, having wait, a receiver wait. bridge is better than, than no, rec- oh, than what? no receiver wait, wait, why was rimless better? Rimless on a rifle? Yeah, why is it better? Well, well, in general, it's better. I mean, for an army. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's better for uh, a rifle's magazine because you can tend to have like a you know a double stacked flush fitting magazine. Um, you know, you don't need to ha- incorporate something like an interrupter in your rifle to fix any future future issues. Which that's another thing. Like whenever people talk about like. A Mosin can't jam because it has an interrupter. It's like, well, why did my why did my Mosin get rimlock if it if there's an interrupter? Anywho, not to get into that, but to me, to me, there's just certain certain things that are just like truth, like objectively truths, like that. Yeah, like, like how like how rimmed rifle rimmed ammo is better. Yeah, rim rimmed. <laughs> yeah, or rimless rimless is better than rimmed. To be fair, it goes back to the Mosin. That's why the Russians went with a rimmed round because they started the whole thing started around having a single shot rifle and then they just slapped a magazine on later. So they're just like, okay, single shot rifle, best ammo rimmed. And they're not wrong. It's, it has an inherent gas check to it. So if you don't have to worry about the magazine and you don't have to worry about machine guns or anything else. Yeah. Go, go rimmed. Yeah. For, for a single shot. Yeah. For a single shot. Yeah. Well, they have single shot bolt actions, but if you're, if you're going to go into, you know, a military, which is then going to be using more than just single shots, you know. This is the best military bolt action rifle. And then it's how I how I pick the best bolt action is just a I don't know if you heard me say that's the that's the name of the video, but it's Yeah, but that's a that's a broad category. Yeah, well if you if you watch you'd kind of see like what I said. Oh, it okay. was it's like these are things to me that in my opinion make the best like the best features for a bolt action. Military whereas action. uh well sort of yeah, I guess a lot of a lot of the things that I that I mentioned in it could be best applicable, to, I guess, to a military. But like to me, as like a collector or shooter, I also like them. Like one of the things is uh, side slung. Like I think that I think that a side slung rifle is better. I think I didn't say that this is objective. I think I kind of went into more like subjective or like opinions. But uh, I said like I think a side slung rifle is better than an underslung rifle, particularly because of how it's carried around. When you carry it, and I don't know if you've carried a rifle around for like you know hours, like hours and hours, but it really gives you a sense of like how a gun feels, especially when you carry it around with the original sling. 
you can be like, oh, this, you know, this thing, this sling is too small, the strap is too skinny, or whatever. Or like, if you had a, um, like, if you carried around like a French, like the Moss Thirty Six sling, is it's nice and thick. Like it's a, it's a really wide. It's not not thick, but it's kind of thick. But it, like a nice wide strap to kind of you know to support it. It's it's really it's a great it's a great sling system. So like that's I think like the the French and and Swiss and Italian sort of side sling system is probably like the like the best um, side sling system. But in the video, I just go through it and I just basically say like, hey, if a rifle is um, it, like the the mount the barrel can't be any longer than like twenty four inches because any longer than that, it's just you know, you you just kind of it's extra length and everything. Twenty four um, sounds like a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know it's a lot. But a lot of people were even arguing that that twenty four was was too short of a cutoff because it because it cut off a lot of people's favorite guns. So then, like, my point was is that like I'm sort of defining the parameters and then seeing what guns fall in there, where people were sort of like, "This is my favorite gun," and then they were painting a target around it, sort of thing. Um, so like, like a, you know, like a 1917 and the, and the K31, they both have barrels longer than 24 inches. So those guns were excluded, even though they're great guns. So I go through the points. Um, I think I got, I got down to, I don't know if I included six, five as well, but six, five or seven, seven millimeter. I think seven millimeter is probably like the, the best all around, like round. For like people like doing for people yeah, hunting. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, people hunting. yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, it's, I'm trying to understand the parameters. I'm just making sure I'm caught up. Here. Yeah. 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 Also, I mean, May, it, May came in and I got distracted. Oh, cause you're supposed to be working, right? Othias? Yeah. yeah. Well, she came in. She's like, I was like, she just came in for the air service rifle. And I was just like, Oh, what you doing? She's like, we never weighed this. I went, we didn't. And that completely distracted me. Cause I just realized I never weighed the air service rifle. And that's, huh? Yeah, hmm. well, no, three pounds less, less stock, but extra magazine, extra bullets. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, with the ammo in it, no, no hope in hell. But it's the magazine enough to make up for the wood and the bayonet lug and everything. I bet the balance is a lot better, though. We're gonna find out. Yeah, I think balance. I would take a gun that was slightly heavier with better balance. I think over slightly lighter and worse balance. Hmm. Because less less weight out front, like I was saying before with the G forty one. Yeah, like God, that tip, tips you forward. Yeah, it so, makes you tired too. What else were people complaining about? What did you pick as your best bolt action rifle? Uh, the in the video, I think I said the Chilean nineteen thirty five, which now I would say the Brazilian nineteen thirty five. I think is the I think is the best. What's the difference? I'll, yeah, I'm like oh, I think I'm uh, neither one of those have dust covers. No, neither they don't. Yeah, neither, do, wait, neither one really. of them have windage. Yeah, nope, no, no, no windage. Wait, neither um, one of those have flashlights. <laughs> they yeah. do have bayonet lugs, though. Yeah, so uh, they have a a built-in front sight protector, which I think the the Chilean and Brazilian 1935 front sight protectors are like probably the best among the Mausers because. It's pretty much just a copy of the of like the the K11 and the the Swiss you know carbine um, front sight protector. So I really like that style, and it's I think it's better than like the clamp on styles, like the like the K98K, like the hooded ones, and even like the little um, VZ24 front sight protectors. Any like little cheap stamped ones, like you know they're they're okay, but I don't think it's quite as good as like a built-in one. Um, and it's got the length. I think it's like a twenty. 
ah, shoot, 21, 22 inch barrel, something like that. Seven millimeter. They're both seven millimeter. The best, the best millimeter. Are they ring um, of steel guns? Turn. What would you say? I don't. Are they ring of steel guns? I don't know if they're ring of steel guns. I don't know what that is. Some of the export guns ended up with the Serbian style ring of steel, which means the better supported case head. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. You have to look in there to see because you'll you can see it if you ever look at a Serbian gun, you'll you'll see it compared to like a regular one. Yeah, I remember because that. It, it doesn't have that Mauser unsupported case head stuff, so like you'll see the um, like a big letter C shape, I guess. And then what else? Uh, I forgot the other thing that I was thinking. It's gone now. I know they're right behind him, and I can hear him going to look. Is he going to look? No, I'm just like looking across the room. Oh. You I'm, can't I'm look not, across the room. I'm not. The bolts well, I'm not I, I I I don't touch guns if I've been drinking, so I just sort of look. This is why you shouldn't leave them all loaded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot to ask Tom before he left what he was drinking. So we're all I think I think Tom drinks whiskey or something. I was drinking a drinking a scotch. Twelve year old scotch, McAllen Scotch. So you're one of the Mauser, huh? Danny's pretty biased. Sounds like it. The obvious answer for best bolt action ever made is the Arisaka. That's Mauser like. Yeah, it's Wait, hold on. Othias, which one? The one in 7mm. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a 7mm Arisaka. I would, I would love to get one of those, man. I've seen them, but they, yeah. That's the, the Mexican one, right? Yeah, the yeah. Mexican. That would be a cool one to have. I forgot about the Mexican one. Yep. You're going to have one. That's the one to have. Not the one in 8x52R Siamese? Yeah. I'm going to go with 7mm on that. <laughs> hey, did you know? Uh, you know you can uh, rebarrel a Siamese into forty-five seventy. Freaking <laughs> hell, Danny! You still? I I get comments on that every time. Every time I post one of those Siamese Mausers, I I've seen these in forty-five seventy. God damn it, guys! Oh man, yeah. Is that on your list of what shit I don't like to hear? <laughs> Conversions. Oh no! God damn it! Uh, no, only, only legit, yeah, military <laughs> conversion. <laughs> yeah, that triggers me so almost looking, as much as as uh, shellac does. So looking at the at the Mexican Arisaka, uh, looks like they had some carbines too, but they're mostly long rifles. I guess the carbine would sort of fit, but I can't see the sling. So it's got to be, or at least I prefer side slung. Front sight protector, I think, is um, I think is key. It didn't look like Mexican Arasakas have a front sight protector. Yeah, yeah, follows the early thirty-eight pattern where there's no. It does a does it has the dust cover though, right? Uh some of them do in these pictures. Yeah. Hmm. Best rifle, Madsen forty-seven. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, yeah. So in my uh, in my ob- ob- objective sort of truths, right? I put. Uh, front locking lugs are better than rear locking lugs. Oh, so the Enfield fanboys are mad. Not just yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Not just them, but the Moss guys, too. Yep, Moss guys, too. Yep. I mean, the Moss is a more rigid receiver, at least. Yeah, yeah, which, like, at least the Moss was created. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we want rear locking lugs, but they knew that it was a, a smokeless, like, high-pressure round. It wasn't like a black powder gun that eventually just got turned into a high-pressure smokeless. So... What were your other criteria? Did you have any other? Yeah, uh, turn down, turn down bolt handle. 
Um, bolt. Yeah, I know. I know you like straight bolts, Matthias. Same here. Yeah, I just haven't. I so it depends. You, it really depends on the conditions. There's just times when you're just like, I could beat it open. Nine times out of ten, curved is better. Well, depending on where it puts your hand. But man, yeah. I've been in some situations where I've just been like, it'd be real nice if I could just hit this against the freaking wall a lot easier. Yeah, I've just, I mean, even shooting like more rough, like K98Ks and, and Turk and stuff like that, getting getting stuck, I've always just been able to like muscle a bent bolt open. So I, I don't know like how important the straight bolt like that would be like for me for shooting, you know, not terrible ammo that was made by a guy in a market somewhere. But uh, I kind of, I, so I showed in the video, like if you, like if you aim, I, and I do this, you aim straight at the camera and then you kind of like work, like pretend like you're working the bolt on a straight bolt handle and like follow the kind of like the path that your, that your hand makes. And it kind of goes up and all the way around or, you know, from the side all the way up and then back kind of down all the way around where if you do that same sort of motion with the bent bolt handle, your hand just kind of goes up and down. So I, I think the, the angle of it is um, a bent bolt handle is much better for if you're keeping the rifle to your shoulder while reloading. If you're putting the gun down next to you and, you know, reloading, like, you know, working the bolt when the gun is kind of at your hip, then, then a straight bolt, like, kind of feels a little bit better doing that. But if you're, like, fast firing from the shoulder... I think is the when a when a bent bolt really shines. It kind of does allow you like faster shots and just sort of better ergonomically. So U.S. Crag number one. Yes. Um, yeah, I think a receiver bridge is better than no receiver bridge on a on a gun. Yeah, but you have to have a rear aperture sight. Yeah, and that was so. That's a that's another thing where like. I understand that like the majority of people would say that a rear aperture sight is better, but to me, when I've, the way I've used them like hunting, um, I just, I don't know. I'm, wait, I'm wait, a wait, we just went from, we went from military to hunting. What's going on there? Well, a similar concept where you're kind of, no, human aiming. is the most dangerous game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, so like uh boar hunting is the, the the thing that i really like about boar hunting versus like deer hunting squeak, squeak. is the fact that like squeaky you know, squeaker squeaker you guys hear that you hear that squeaking i think no. he's backing up it sounds like uh somebody's somebody's got a little dolly out maybe they're moving the goalposts oh yeah <laughs> i'm gonna use that so you know good danny <laughs> <laughs> i'm stealing that that was funny so it's just it's just in my experience in uh in and in, in hog hunting pretty much is where right, like so we have to keep the bayonet for, for 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 pig cattle. I didn't even I didn't even mention the bayonet at okay. all and the and the and pokey the, or stabby. I've like never I've never been, are we doing slicey or pokey? I've never bayonet? you know that's that's one of my you know everyone calls like bayonets a pig sticker. I don't even know where that came from. They would stick pigs. But I don't get like when what situation over the fire, using a, but like a, as okay. Did you not read Lord of the Flies? I just saw the movie. I don't. I hope that scene's not in the movie. I've never seen the movie. Oh God, that that book, that book in a movie form would be a nightmare. So anywho, the uh, the the sights. I'm I'm like I get objectively with the with the re, you know rear aperture sight. You have like a longer sight radius, except when it comes to like a Type ninety nine. 
Well, yes, they'll have a more uh, natural one for the, the people that you recruit. Aperture site training is a lot easier on new recruits. Hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I've done, I mean, I've done like accurate shooting with both. So I understand like the pros and cons of both. Yeah, but you're not a litter. Sometimes I like some, only, yeah, some. You're not a <laughs> potato farmer. Yeah, I have a buddy. He's a Marine. He's my best friend. He breaks things. Yeah, I got one of them too. You can't make it complicated. Like align two things. What are you high? Look through the circle. Point at the thing. Yeah. So, anywho, I don't even think it was part of the. Uh, I don't think it was like it came down to it because I'm trying to think of a gun that met the criteria that has a rear aperture sight on it. It's like nineteen or three A three. I think the barrel's too long. Have you ever shot the Madsen forty seven? Because it has technically an aperture sight. But God, yeah, it's it, weird. It's super it's... awful. It's the worst. Like, how could you make it worse than just? I know what we'll do. We'll take these two sighting systems and combine them for the worst of both. I was really confused the first time I shot my Type ninety nine for that reason because it's a it's a round rear sight and a triangle front sight. It was really odd to me. It's like yeah, uh, what's the Shire does those handguns that have the triangle sights? Oh yeah, yeah. They're I uh, I have like such a love hate relationship with those sights. Did you really only eliminate the K thirty one because of barrel length? No, I think I think I had to do with caliber. It's not turned down. Straight pull. Yes, I know, but it's not turned down, which is one of his things that he wanted to have. He wants his trigger finger to be near the trigger. Yes. You know what? I've never even thought of that when it comes to turn down bolts. Because to, to, to me, exactly where the bolt handle goes doesn't seem to be like a big... Wait, why were you choosing turn down bolts then? Uh, for, for the reasons that I said before about when it comes to shoulder firing, mostly. Um, I, I don't like it sticking out as well. Um, it kind of goes along with like like carrying around a gun. Like I like a side side sling and turn down bolt if you're going to carry it around a lot. Um, and then also firing from the shoulder and keeping. I, I think it has to do with keeping the gun at the shoulder. If you're looking down the sights, firing and keeping. Oh, you mean not having a wing up over? Okay, I get it. Yeah, I think that the a, a straight bolt is very hard to keep at. The, it's, it's doable. Like I've done it, you know, uh, in, in videos and stuff. But it's. It's just not. It's not as good as uh, keeping it at the shoulder. Um, if you're lowering him to the hip and doing it that way, yeah. But um, so that's that's probably the main reason. I think it's just more ergonomic for for sh for shooting it and keeping keeping it at the shoulder. I think is probably you know the 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 better way. Why didn't you go with the thirty three forty then? Uh, I think I w I eliminated stuff. God, I need to rewatch this video. I think I eliminated stuff over seven millimeter. I think I was just kind of like after you know. You increase the diameter past seven millimeter, you're you're kind of get getting like tiny gun, big boom, ouchy shoulder. Gotcha. I will be right back. One second. Okay. Sort of. It's sort of one of those things where it's yeah. like, what what are you gaining for for the extra recoil, and extra boom, and everything I understand. like that? So, but <laughs> I mentioned all this just to say that the comments on that video is probably the best, like the the most uh, the most emotional, most angry, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not even your highest viewed video. Like, it's not even in the top 10. Yeah, but, no. 30, yeah, no, just 32,000 views. Um, it's not that, not, not up there. Oh, yeah, and I do, I do call out. It's not even the first the, four rows of your most viewed videos. <laughs> yeah. Some of your old stuff is up there higher. 
like uh, your review of the Mac 90 AK 47. Yeah, yeah, that was back before we were Millsurp World. Back when I was just North Florida gun guy. Remember when you changed the name and suddenly some of your videos came off of being an issue? <laughs> yeah, it does. I think it does help that. I don't remember what video it was. I don't know. You were like these. I had like a. You remember you telling me you were like I had like three or four videos that were not be able to be monetized and they had been in review for like years, and then you changed the name to Millsurp World and they suddenly became okay to be monetized. Uh, oh yeah. I forgot how many years I went without even actually being able to monetize the channel. Like, dude, it was so hard to get the channel monetized. I probably missed a lot of... I think most... Like, the M1... My M1 Tips and Tricks video that has over a million views, most of that was before the channel was monetized, so I didn't get any of that. And it's just like, geez, like, how much How much was that? But I guess just, just the YouTubes got to got to keep... Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some good comments here. Uh, I need to get going soon. Oh, okay, about, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Jared. I forgot about you guys. Yeah, yeah, it's eleven thirty here. Oh yeah, that East Coast life. I'm okay. We'll. Uh, we're waiting for Othias to come back, so we just don't leave him here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He just comes back, and we're all gone. Just like what? What the <laughs> heck happened? The shit. What do I do? We're we're about ready to head out, Othias. Oh, so we were just discussing. Bye. We were discussing whether Good or not just to leave you. you. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Oh no, it's May. Hey, oh man. shit. Yeah. Smoke bomb. <laughs> and he disappears. <laughs> All right, you want to you want me to sign us off, Danny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you everybody for coming. Uh uh it's just me and Danny and Jared left at this point. Uh but thank you Tom and Othias for joining us and May at the very end there. Um had a good discussion about all kinds of random stuff today. Hopefully everybody follows us. Uh, follow us on uh, Danny has an Instagram, right? Uh, yeah. On YouTube, subscribe, like and subscribe and comment for our algorithms. Um, and uh, oh, and if you would like to be on the podcast you uh can join as a member of our patreon right danny yep yep we select yeah i started doing that selecting people from patreon because legit it's only because of the people that contribute money on patreon that pay to keep this podcast up yes um so as a thank you i um it's all you got to do is you have to be a like a uh, a patreon member for like a little while before and you have to get on the list and then you can come on the show oh and and we do Except everyone, but you need to have a mic that doesn't sound like you're speaking through a tin can. Yeah, a decent microphone is like the only. And I know. I know. Tom was was worried about his mic, and his didn't sound. Yeah, he sounded bad. good. He sounded yeah, he fine. Sounded but that is a thing that we need to figure out, obviously, before we start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Like we did run into issues with um, crap. Our, I can't remember his name. Our very early, our very early podcasts. I, I know I didn't. No, it wasn't you necessarily, good. but it was um, who's the guy in Italy? Oh, uh, Maro. Maro, yeah. His yeah. his mic was awful, cutting in and out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, but, cool. Cool for him to be on, but yeah. Yeah, it was great. He's got great information and all kinds of cool stuff. But like, yeah, like. <sighs> okay. Anyway, uh, so everybody, thank you for coming, and thank you for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. See ya.